Alright, everybody, welcome to Thrill Me, where Kersey and I discuss horror movies, thrillers, action movies that have a lot of, like, fear factor in them. I'm your host, Michael. Obviously, I said that's Kersey. I shouldn't have flown that earlier. Say hello, Kersey. Hey, what's up, everybody? Alright, so this episode, we finally entered 1981, and we are going to discuss one of the true classics of the genre, and that is Scanners. And the other mm -hmm. one is Ticket to Heaven, which is kind of a lost, forgotten film that someone recommended to me. And you're going to wonder why they're connected. And I think they're both about fucking with your head. And I, I, that's, that's the best connection I can make. That's cool, everybody? Yeah. <laughs> one, one more physical, one metaphorical. I, I think it works. Oh, both Canadian movies. I forgot. Both Canadian movies that got picked yep. up by American distributors. Oh, there you go. All right, so Scanners. Uh, yes. I've seen the whole franchise. Have you seen the sequels? I honestly did not know there were sequels. And I am really excited to go watch them. Uh, it's the only series I know that gets better as it goes because there's a 10-year gap between Scanners 1 and 2. And by then, the special effects got better, the pacing's a little bit better, and then the 3s really kick ass. 4 and 5 take it into like a cop genre. It's called Scanner Cop and the Scanner Cop Showdown. And they're fucking gore-tastic and they're weird as shit. Nice. Oh, my God, I can't wait for that. It sucks because if, if it really is 10 years, then there's going to be a long time until we get to that. Yeah, sadly. Um, so with this one, I, my major problem with Scanners, and it's the only problem, is the lead is dull as shit. Stephen Lack, it's the most appropriate name. Yes, uh, that is definitely, he definitely uh, really drags the movie. Uh, it, it, the movie itself does have kind of like this dreamlike quality, and it's a, it's a very strange, quiet movie, and he does not make it any any more interesting yeah, uh, unfortunately. I mean, was it done on purpose because he's kind of a lost soul, so he's supposed to be a little vacant? I don't know. But it just seems like Cronenberg struggled getting the right lead until he did, um, you know, Videodrome and Dead Zone. The next, what, 83, I think, is when he did them. That's when he started getting, like, the really good leads. Yeah. I, I understand what, what he was going for. Like, the whole idea is that this person kind of fumbled, almost like he has no personality. I think it's kind of the idea because he genuinely like doesn't know who he is and we kind of assume it's kind of like this weird sort of amnesia side effect um but anyway we'll, we'll get more into the spoiler territory in a bit but yeah it's um, I, that's... There, there was there was a reason there, there was a reason behind it but it just it, it didn't work yeah it's uh this is right when he's about to break through and i think this is cronenberg's first like technically successful film it made 14 million dollars off a three million dollar budget and you know, he gets more to play with. I've seen the ones he did before this, like The, the Brood and uh, Shivers. I think, she, I can't remember Shivers. What's the one with Marilyn Chambers, the ex-porn star, where she had like a vagina on her arm and she would, <laughs> it would leak and poison bite people? Do you remember this one? I thought that was Brood, but I... Oh, no, it's Rabbit, Rabbit. Oh, uh, okay. Um, yeah, so it's, it's kind of goofy. So this is where he's trying to, trying to go for more mainstream films. And, uh, you know, he's bringing conspiracy theories into it. He's got action sequences, real special effects. Um, like I said, besides the, the main guy, I think it's a pretty entertaining film. I think it's I actually, I, I freaking love this movie. I actually think it's really good. Um, there's a lot of parallels between, um, like, real-life uh, events. Uh, specifically, I know that the, one of the things they were talking about, which was... Um, God, I cannot, I cannot remember this chemical, but basically it was LSD? pregnant. No. Oh. <laughs> it was a, specifically for pregnant women, which I think was supposed to be kind of like a, a pain medication. Uh -huh. um, but the problem is that they're 
in chemistry, and I'm going to mess this up because I don't know anything about chemistry, but there are there's basically like chiral proteins, so ones that are like mirrored. So if, if, the, if the structure is built uh, one way, it, it works completely different than if it's built the complete opposite. Okay. They kind of they look the same. So anyway, the, the, the drug they were given was basically its chiral opposite, which became a poison, which that basically oh. caused birth defects. Oh, God. And so, which was kind of the... But the, and at the end of the movie, that's kind of what it was about, was that they were intentionally giving pregnant women this medication to create, like, um, some, like, super side effect in children. Well, you saw the, uh, have you ever seen It's Alive, the the crazy baby that eats people? Uh, no. Uh, there's, there's a trilogy of these movies, and uh, that's one of the caveats, is the babies are created because they're doing this experimentation with the water in this in this town, to see how it affects pregnant women, and the the baby comes out and it's got like fucking talons and claws, and it just will gore you like crazy. Uh, gross. Yeah, it's fucking bananas. Um, <laughs> but also that's, that's kind of the thing in, in Firestarter, which we'll discuss in a, in 1984, is you know the the experiments that we were doing. Everybody talks about the Nazi experiments, but there's experiments that we were doing during the 50s and 60s on people. It's and, and no one wants to talk about it. Didn't you do Firestarter? No, we have never done Firestarter. That's the one we did. Anyway, uh, another uh, sort of brings up like the speedy experiments where people are given um, treatment medications without being told what it is. Right. Uh, so yeah, there, there's a lot of parallels with things that were actually happening at the time and just in uh, generally in our history of uh, medical treatments in the U.S. So there's a lot of really interesting things about that. I think another thing that it brings up although maybe I'm reaching on this just because of the time period we're living in. I'm just constantly thinking about this kind of stuff. But the idea that the um, the scanner that is basically trying to bring the world to its knees is kind of a domestic terrorist because he was basically created um, by, I think it was like an offshoot of, of the government. Um, right, yeah. Sort, sort of like medication or whatever, engineering. Um, that eventually... Uh, sort of be trying to end it as well. So it's kind of like this weird thing where we're... Um, and then the main character who's also a scanner is also being brainwashed into thinking that he's that this guy is his enemy, even though he's trying to help him. Uh, it's, kind of, it's kind of this interesting parallel. Anyway, well, I thought about while watching. Yeah, it's, there's a lot... Of, so there's talking about government experiments about brainwashing and double agents. Uh, you got lone just psychopaths who are like, you know, uh, domestic terrorists, which is what Michael Ironside's character is. But then you have later when uh, Jennifer... Not Jennifer Warren. Jennifer... Uh, fuck. I'm going I'm to cheat. I'm going to cheat everybody. I'm sorry. Jennifer O'Neill. Uh, she's like the head of this group of scanners that are trying to develop their powers because Stephen Lack, uh, Cameron, has never had any control. And that's why he's homeless and he's been on the run because he doesn't know how to handle his powers. And I don't want to say it's like a cult, but the way that they operate seems like some sort of secret cult, you know, like a mix between what, you know, Professor X was doing with his school and what you see in something like David Koresh kind of thing where it's off the beaten path, hidden and, and uh and they're trying to get him to infiltrate, not realizing that he's letting these murderers in, and, and they're going to assassinate the other scanners. Yeah, which I really like that, but, by the way. Because it kind of sets up this idea that he's going to be trained by this new, like, to control his power, and, you know, at, like, with this group, and then almost immediately they all get killed. Yeah, that, that completely throws you, because you do not expect it. You also don't expect that when they they arrest um, Michael Ironside's character, was it Revoc? There's a company named Revoc, by the way, that sells uh, bootleg foreign films <laughs> i bought from them um 
that they uh, they kidnap him or not kidnap him, but they take him and they basically use him as a weapon. Right. Exactly. So the, uh, a lot of really interesting things happening in this movie, and, and I, the, the reason why I, I I I defend the the really bad charismatic actor. The reason I I kind of I kind of defend it only because there is a, an intentional reason why he is like that. It's because. As it turns out, he's basically just been kept on ice, where he's just been put in this, or like continually being brainwashed, so that he doesn't know who he is, doesn't know his past. So that way, when they do need him uh, to try to like pacify the other uh, scanners, that he can be like easily trained to be a killer. Right. So um, he he has like a blocker in his brain, like he's in a constant fog. Exactly. So that's so. I, I think the ending was changed. There's something about the ending that doesn't really make sense because they kind of build up this idea that the main character is actually kind of the villain and that the villain that the character is actually doing not necessarily the heroic action, but basically trying to stop these people um, as far as we know. And then at the end, it kind of changes all of a sudden where he's like, oh, I'm going to rule the world. It's like, what? that doesn't really make Yeah. It doesn't really follow with every other decision you've made so far. Um. Before we get to the end, though, I, I wanted to bring up two things. There's a character in this. He first meets um, uh, Pierce, who uh, he has like this loft cabin kind of thing that he meets him and he gets assassinated pretty quickly. I want to say the epic level of that fucking comb-over is awe-inspiring. That is the greasiest spaghetti head I've ever seen. At what point do you just go, no, let's just shave our head. This is stupid. <laughs> I think it would also be a disservice if we, uh, if we didn't mention uh, the awesome head explosion at the beginning of the movie yeah i mean that's pretty much what everyone knows about it. right that, that's a scanners to a normie everyone knows that scene yeah well here's the thing is i didn't know this until my friend um andrew told me is that when they shot that they used a shotgun they didn't use internal yes. explosives on a fake head they had a fake body whatever and they just shot a, a, a the gun right at it blew its head up and it got all over michael Ironside, and he kind of like freaked out because it was way too close way too loud but here's the thing is you watch the movie, you never see Michael Ironside cover. He's you not never see. Right there. Yeah, he's not in the explosion. Why put him in danger like that? Yeah, uh, yeah what did they fill up? It was like, like just like dog food and red dye. I don't know. It's got to be like that. It's like yeah. Jello. I don't know. It's, it's truly disgusting, but awe inspiring. It is for a movie that kind of that looks like this to have a special effect that good is yeah. kind of impressive. And and the end, the special effects at the end are excellent. Uh, this would this would turn Michael Ironside into a go-to villain for a long time. In fact, I think he's still playing villains, but a lot of times he plays like military guys. But he became legendary in this genre. Yeah, uh, for good reason. I mean, he is the best part of this movie. Like he really should have been the main character. Oh yeah, he he's truly entertaining. He's my favorite part of Starship Troopers by a long shot. <laughs> yeah. Oh yeah, that's the one where he's missing half his arm. Right. right yeah. Um, Ron's really weird though. A tough guy like him. When you watch him in uh, Total Recall, running around, and whoa, just that limb is just flying all over the place like a dead fish. It's crazy. Uh, the other thing I was gonna say is, yeah, th this is like right when bubble effects are becoming a thing. Uh, not bubble, sorry, bladder effects. We're gonna see it this year like crazy in American Werewolf London and The Howling and, and of course Scanners. And it's truly fascinating. I miss kind of that. I know it's cliche, but I kind of miss that effect. I don't like the CJ alterations because they look so obvious now. You say bladder effects? Mm-hmm. I, I think they're originally created with condoms, if I remember correctly. Um, 
like when their veins are pulsing? Yeah, so when their face is, yeah, pulsating. Like, usually when they do transformation sequences is when it's, like, Bladder Town USA. But in this one, yeah, it's just under the skin, and they start to, like, uh, God, it's gross. Their skulls look like they're just caving in on themselves. And uh, that ending is truly gruesome, what happens to Reebok. But then he switches... No, no, not Reebok. The hero... Uh, yes. dies, he, like, incinerates, but he transfers his mind into Reebok and takes over. Yeah, exactly. Ugh. You gotta make a choice so between the two. I'm sorry. Ironside's pretty ugly. <laughs> I don't want to hop into that. <laughs> um, yeah, it, it's just, there's, like, little things about the movie as well. Just, um, I think near the beginning of the movie, when he's first looking at uh, Michael Ironside, when they're showing him that footage when he first tried to, like, put a drill into his head. Oh, God, really, yeah. Which is, it, that is such a good scene. For so many reasons, this is acting is excellent. I love that he drew drew an eye on the on his um, bandage, uh, so it kind of was like that <laughs> that chakra kind of thing going on. And then, like when he's looking at him, he says that, that he, he when he looks at Michael Ironside, he's like that's me. And then at the end, he literally is him. I don't know. It's so, like little things like that pay off in the end. But yeah, just, like those details. Yeah, I really enjoy this one. I'm telling you, though, this is one of the craziest film series. It's going to get wilder and wilder, and I and I love campy, trashy films, and the, this movie gets so bananas. Like, it just, every entry is, like, up the stakes with the crazy-ass... Like, you think Michael Ironside's the craziest villain? No. Oh, my God, it's going to get great. <laughs> All right, I can't wait for that. Yeah, well, you're going to have to wait. It's, it's Bethel 91, sorry. I know. All right, so our second film is an obscure one, like another Canadian film that was uh, barely released by United Artists. Um, a friend of mine recommended it, and frankly, it's I think it's a fascinating look at the re, the world of cults. Um, this is when cults were really starting to blow up. We had uh, uh, what's a Gu- Guyano, uh, uh, J- uh, Jim Jones, and uh, I think we had what some young moon here in Oregon during the seventies. Heaven's, Heaven's Gate. I can't remember. Yeah, that was in the nineties. I remember that one. Uh, what was the Kokesh one? What was that? Uh, that was 90... David Crash. I think it was 91 or 92? Oh, never mind. Yeah. But there's always ebbs and waves with cults, though, but this is when people really started to find out that cults were a thing. We're in the late 70s. So you have this, and you have Split Image, and a couple other movies that are really like, hey, let's see what that world is like. It's not based on a true story, but it feels like somebody was in one and then wrote this and just changed all the names. Yes, it is... I, I really didn't know what to expect when I started watching it, especially the beginning, because the beginning was uh, kind of annoying. Yeah. But it, it really pays off later, um, and it's it is really good because I'm someone who like really uh, was so interested in cults, uh, like in high school, and I'd read like about Manson, cult, and all that kind of shit. So like watching this movie, it was basically like a two-hour dissertation about how cults affect you. Yeah. It does such an amazing job at showing how they break people down. Yeah, and cults are not going away. I mean, look, we got a president that has a massive cult run in the most, I think, probably the biggest and most dangerous cult I think we've ever seen. I mean, it works. Yeah, we're talking people waving an American flag, ironically, trying to destroy the foundation of the thing they claim to believe. It's, it's, it's incredible. Yeah. And it's, uh, it just it takes broken people. That's where these cults really tap in: is people who are lost, who are broken, and they're opportunistic. Uh, you know, I think about there, there's two versions of the cult. You usually see like the horror version. There's a great movie with uh, Stephen Dorff called Jackals, where they try to deprogram this boy who gets uh, sucked into a cult. Um, and then there's uh, oh damn it, I just uh, Lord of Illusions was about a cult. 
And so there's so many of these movies lately that uh, that are horror bad, but this one tries to give you real life horror. And I think Nick Mancuso's performance from just guy going, he's just a guy who's curious whatever happened to his friend. He's just going to go visit him for the weekend. And then it just turns into a never ending nightmare where he cannot escape. Yeah, and what I really like about it too is that it kind of doesn't go exactly the way you think it would because, like, the Hollywood version of this, uh, and I think Midsummer is kind of guilty of this, even though I love Midsummer, uh, is that it tries to, it would try to, like, rope someone in through acts of kindness to make people feel like they belong to a community, which is not exactly how it works. And I think this movie does it so much better by showing just kind of the, constant almost dehumanization to break a person and then have their only salvation be this group right like it's it's this process of um yeah like making this person just feel like i just need to get out of here and then being like oh but it's okay because now we'll be now we're gonna be kind to you now you're gonna thank us for what we do to you it's, it's, it's really good. The only thing I think maybe the film shouldn't have done is it starts off with the end. Basically, they're showing you yeah. how he got, you know, uh, how he got to that point throughout the movie. Like, and I almost you wish think he's just gonna like turn to the camera and it's like, well, that's me. I'm yeah. still wondering how I got here. Like it's kind of like you said the that opening. Kind of uh -huh. <laughs> but I almost wish they hadn't shown that because so many times he almost escapes, and I think that would have been scarier if you didn't know the end result was already well. He's not. You no, know, he doesn't get to escape. He doesn't. Get, you know, um, I think it would have built up the tension a little bit better if you didn't know the end result. Yeah, but they, they already have a scene where, he, like, I mean, yeah, they have, like, multiple scenes where he tries to escape. Maybe they just kind of didn't want to do it again to have it, like, three or, like, the fourth or fifth time. Yeah, maybe. So, I don't know. Maybe, yeah, it, it is kind of a weird start to a movie, and I think that if you just cut that part out, it would be great. Yeah, so, I mean, it's just taking this guy who's curious to see his old friend, what kind of world. He's really skeptical and, and questions a lot, but they always give like, these weird vague answers. They give him shitty foods, you know, and then they won't let him sleep. They won't let him have even a moment of peace. He wants to go off and clear his head, but they will not let him clear his head. And these are all people who went through the same exact process who slowly got broke down, and they're okay with it. It's like if we're suffering, you have to suffer with us. It's weird. Yeah, it, it, it's interesting how it works. And, and again, it's done extremely well it's very tasteful and i think they're very faithful to how these things actually work yeah. and I'm, I'm actually surprised i don't know about this movie. yeah this is on it's, it's lost it's only ever been on no it's, no it's not i forgot i'm sorry uh, it was on vhs forever but a canadian company called echo bridge released it briefly on dvd but they've gone out of business so it's pretty hard to find. i found it on youtube that's where i shared it with you this is I think a really good movie. And there's a good double pair. I got to show Split Image to you next year, which is kind of similar plot from a different angle. This takes adults and breaks them down. Um, Split Image takes high school students um, where they're much more vulnerable and then breaks them down and then trying to save them with uh, deprogramming. It's it's a really good film. Yeah, that's interesting because I was looking through the YouTube comments because I was like, oh man, I wonder what everyone else is saying about it. And a lot of people were talking about Split Image yeah. being like an essential viewing after this one. Yeah, it's uh, the interesting part is his friend Saul Rubinek almost has the same exact story. He's a stand-up comedian. He follows the same exact path. He wants to know where his friend's been, so he goes there. He's skeptical, but it's kind of fun, and then he's questioning. But he gets out. Yes, and it's through a, a process that actually is real. This does exist, even though maybe some people who don't know about this might think that this is kind of a day sex, but uh, it is real. There are people who purposely infiltrate cults to try to kidnap people to take them out to deprogram them, which yeah. is exactly what happens to the, our, the main character. 
Yeah, I think it's a very good movie. You're going to see early performances by Meg Foster, who was like, you know, the queen of the fan, uh, I can't talk, sci-fi fantasy films like They Live, Blind Fury, mm-hmm. uh, Masters of the Universe, uh, The Glowing Eyes Lady. <laughs> yes. Another thing, too, like, I, what I love is that the, like, uh, there, I don't know why this is, there's just kind of this weird, strange sort of militarism that happens in cults after their leader is gone. Someone else, like, steps up and, like, takes it in a more fucked up direction for yeah. some reason. And, well, yeah, so, and so that's kind of what she does in the movie, because their leader does die in about, like, what, 45 minutes in the movie? I'm like, oh, okay, well, now what? And then just, like, this woman just takes over and just makes it more, like, horrible and demeaning than it yeah. was before. Well, and there's also that uh, the manic behavior. It's like they drive you insane. They, they have these like big speeches, and then you're running around, you're singing songs, you have some weird guy uh, just constantly hammering away at you in front of a podium. It's just so I, that terrifies me. This terrifies me more than most horror movies because this happens every day. Yeah, absolutely. Um, another thing that the main character's friend, who's the stand-up, I love that guy. And I really wish he was like he, he was the lead in a lot more movies. Yeah, he's he, only been in a couple. I think Soup for Two and a couple others, but he's mostly a character actor. I think you've probably seen him in um, uh, True Romance. He's the film producer at the end. Yeah, no, I, I love. I've seen him in a lot of things. Uh, he's like was a the lead actor in like my favorite episode of Star Trek. Oh, uh, cool. Yeah, it was, it was it was one where his character is like obsessed with wealth, and he basically like steals the most precious items, the man with the most toys. So he basically kidnaps Beta. Oh, nice. To be part of his collection. And it's such a good episode. And, uh, yeah, he's fantastic. Now, Saul Rubinek and uh, Vic, uh, Nick Mancuso were in a movie we discussed uh, a couple back called Death Ship, which is also Canadian production. I wonder if they're buddies, because they seem to be in a lot of interesting... I really like Nick Mancuso. He's a strange uh, actor who uh, who is the very first person, a first American actor to say, hey, let's shoot this in Canada to save money. And that because he had family up there as well, it was called um, Stingray, and it was from the guy who created A Team and stuff like that. So he started production of American TV shows in Canada, which is still done today. Wow, is he the, the guy that was key programming at the end? Uh, he is no, he's the main character. He's the one who got oh, oh, okay. his mind wiped. Yeah, he was a leading man for quite some time. Yeah, I, I can do that. He's, he's a handsome man and he's a good actor. So. All right, so that is. Fun. It's for this episode. Um, uh, I'm going to prepare Kersey for the next episode. <coughs> the Howling and American Werewolf in London. There we go. <laughs> All right, excellent. I can't wait. <laughs> All right, everybody, check us out on Facebook. <laughs> I like I almost ran over my own laugh with a real laugh. <laughs> okay. Okay, I think you're having a stroke here. All right, so check us out on Facebook under uh, Video Night and uh, Kersey. Thank you for this episode. Yeah, thank you. Uh, Excellent choices. I can't wait for that. All right. See you, everybody. Bye. Hey everybody, welcome to another episode of Comics on Infinite Earths. 
Now normally we have the same reoccurring guests, but I've decided to widen my field and also widen what I've been reading. I usually read the superhero stuff and Marvel, DC, and a little bit of like, you know, movie spin-off stuff. Um, but my guest this week, John, how's it going, John? How's it going? I am Doing being right challenged. I'm being challenged by John to read some stuff out of my normal comfort zone. And I want to thank you for that. You're very welcome. But then it's also I in the the comics I was picking. I always try to go with the strongest stuff I can. If you're gonna, if you're gonna have someone read, uh, I, I guess Saga you would consider indie, but the other one, Transmetropolitan, that's a little bit more uh, main. That was still Vertigo, so still kind of mainstream. Right, and yet, it's from DC. They have that promotional money, so yes, it has an independent, unique way of thinking, but it had more promotion than most of the independent comics do. Yeah, and. It's like if you're going to start on something definitely out, quote unquote, out of the mainstream and not superhero, you always want to, you know, take one of the best steps forward. Yeah, I feel like the stuff that I have read that's independent is like the old Image stuff. You know, Savage Dragon. I was a big reader of um, the writer of Saga. You know, he did Ex Machina, which is almost just you know a normal superhero story that was independent. I think it might have been Wildstorm, um, but yeah, mostly I just that, stick I to the superheroes. Oh, uh, Vaughn also did Runaways for Marvel, which mm. which is definitely a uh, definitely a superhero comic. That's probably one of the least superhero-y type comics ever. Right? Have you watched the show yet? I have not. I'm concerned. I've heard good things about it, but part of me is just I I see some of how they are changing it, and then I kind of feel oh, you're, you're taking away a lot of stuff that I like about the comic. Same way, kind of the same way I feel about Preacher, though. It's like I love the Preacher comic. I'm not as big on the TV show. It's not that it's like badly cast or the actors are bad in it. It's just they're deviating so far from what I liked about the story that I just I, I can't get behind it. Yeah, I haven't watched that one either. I'm really, really, really behind good. on all of my series. I think I'm just watching Punisher now, and uh, I do feel like there's something special in the comics that I just lost, especially in Preacher. Preacher is the only... Um, I would say like mature, independent-minded uh, comic book that I finished. Yeah, and, and I'll give and I'll give the show credit. It is still ballsy enough. It it holds a lot, even if they're not doing what you know, and considering how hard uh, how hard a preacher can be, as you know, R-rated as it goes, the TV show does manage to get away with a lot of stuff that I'm frankly a little bit shocked at. I was not expecting the Descendant of Jesus to. Uh, to actually ever be put to film, and they did do that. Have they thrown in Arse face? Which, oh. You know, he's the one who shot himself in the face, but he survived, but is now his whole face yeah. looks yeah. like a bunny. Yeah, 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 yeah. <laughs> yeah, but, they, but they've gone in like a weird direction with him where he ends up to hell. Huh. As long and, as I don't uh, have to sit... He, there's one moment in the comic that drove me nuts. I was like, I can't believe they went this far, is when the two hillbillies are hanging out with each other, and I think one of them fucks a fish? Oh, yeah. That's a... That's a weird. Uh, it was a parody of like a, of like one of these older older comic strip type characters, and yeah, they show up and uh, cause havoc for everything. <laughs> All right, so yeah, they, go ahead. Oh no, just yeah, that I doubt that would that would ever make it, just because it's like a weird rant, you know, weird one off uh, story. Right, not necessary to the the main storyline. Uh, the two comics we're going to yeah. talk about in particular in this episode is Transmetropolitan and Saga. 
And uh, I had been hearing rumblings about Saga, but you know, it wasn't something that I really saw advertisements for. I didn't know what it was about. I just kind of casually saw it at my library, and I picked it up based on your suggestion. And I only got into the first six issues, but I am wowed at how uh, Vaughn has made a story that's huge, epic. And yet you relate to it in such a way because he got to that basic uh, understanding of you know normal everyday life on Earth, but just in an exaggerated form. Yeah, it's like the one way I like to describe it is it's basically it's a it's a very simple story, but take fantasy characters because you have these uh, horned uh, kind of like kind of animal people almost. And then you have these people who are kind of like maybe fairies and things like that. Put them in a little bit more of a science fiction slash uh, science fiction Star Wars setting, and then make them talk like we do. Yeah, because the problem with so a lot of sci-fi. And... Yeah, the problem with a lot of sci-fi is that it gets caught up in the details. The the, the it's the same thing with sword and sorcery. These words are supposed to feel exotic and weird, but you're just like, I. It sounds like gibberish. I don't understand what any of this means. And some people eat that up. And I'm not one of those. <laughs> I'm not one of those people. Yeah, it's like I I have a love for it, but at the same time, sometimes you get a little too fancy, and you just kind of like, no, no, no. Tell your story. Don't get wrapped up in. Like, as you kind of said, gibberish, all this uh, this stuff where it's like, you know what? Can't these people ever just be like we are? And there we go. We got Saga. And, and the cool part is that he focused on the most important thing is the relationship between uh, the couple who have just had a baby instead of like, oh, well, let's start off with this huge storyline about a massive galaxy war or the rebels or, you know, you know, it's just – one of these things, that's the cliches of these epics, is that it gets bogged down in the big picture, but at no point do you have the everyman kind of thing that you can connect to. Yeah, because, I mean, they, they give you an entire, we understand that this is a war. They, you know, as you get into the like first issue of this, they kind of, you start off with family, kind of start off with essentially what is their conflict at the moment, which is trying to escape this world that they're Because our heroes are, at this point, fugitives, because they have... Uh, in a war between what they refer to as the uh, little planet called Landfall and this and its moon uh, called Reef, basically these these two sides decide that they they were tired of fighting the war on their own turf, so they outsource it. They take it to other places and ruin them. And this current place that they're on is a place called Reef, and I'm sorry, Cleve. Okay, uh, Cleve, and uh, they're trying to escape this, this planet because they're tired. You know. They don't want to be part of this war. They fell in love and managed to have a child, which both sides kind of never expected to be possible. And because, or at and, least if it's right, and because yeah, of least, that, it's like, it's, a, possible, it's like a crime, right? Yeah, and both and both sides hire mercenaries to go and kill them, <laughs> and at least save the child, at least. But you know, you hire someone to get rid of these two two people who you know, have kind of thrown off the narrative. You can't have these two people, you know, two sides can't fall in love. They're, you have to be bitter rivals no matter what. And the smart thing also is um, they fill a lot of the character pieces and the dialogue while still on the move. Like, there's constant action. It doesn't... Uh, there's some of the comic books nowadays, they want to separate themselves from the big two, 
and it gets kind of boring because it's just nonstop bubbles and you're just like yeah dialogue 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 oh boy i'm gonna get sleepy just you know get to page two and nothing ever happens but he did a really good job of balancing both the development of the story and the characters as well as keeping it going yeah there's definitely a a lot like if you look at the like how the panels are laid out on this they really don't do a whole you know it's like every every panel they choose is always tells a story which is you know how good storytelling is let's be, let's be honest, but Fiona Staples does not waste any any space, and every you know, even this first these first six issues, a lot happens, but it's really a very simple story of these two trying to escape, and you're just kind of watching these pieces all come together. Because I'm, I was also a little surprised at how much gets set up in just the first two issues. You know, it's like they introduce a lot of a lot of players that are you know very important in the story and it's like it's like okay yeah instead of like one or two people we see and and they solely build a cast we're given a lot of cast just early on it's pretty heavy and they're all and, important and they're all and the design work on it i'm not talking just the art i mean the design of the characters it's completely unique i feel like i've never seen anything quite like this yeah cause like you have the uh the blue bloods these uh tv headed robot people that are you know it's like so unique, and then again, you have as we kind of said, fairies. Uh, you have these winged people, and it's everyone looks so different uh, in their design. There's like, but yet everything about it is completely uh, relatable because the clothing that they have is, you know, looks like something that we would like you would recognize someone going by on. Even though you also have like the Will, one of the the freelance characters, the bounty hunter is, you know, rocking a cape. And yet it doesn't feel off, even though you got, uh, like, people just wearing, uh, like, like long coats. And, you know, there's a like, guy kind of looks like he's from the Matrix at one point. It's a, just... Yeah, but the choosing that, um, it's kind of like the uh, the rule that Sam Raimi had with Evil Dead is chose, choose functional clothing, not stylized clothing, because Saga is going to look great and undated for, like, the next 30, 40 years. No one's really going to notice, but... You know, a lot of the comics that started off, like, in the 90s, when I started reading comics heavily, they look like they're just of that time period, and that's it, and it looks really oh, tacky. Yeah. You can, yes, you have the, the life fieldization of the X-Men, Ugh, where tons. everybody has uh, <laughs> pockets everywhere. And, I mean, it, I, there's something about it that I enjoy, but at the same time, yeah, you spend, like, God, those are terrible costumes. And yet, I still love, love the, especially Cable at that that design on cable at that time, even though it's completely, you know, yeah, it's, it's like, it's all useless. There's yeah. no function to any of that. Huh. Uh, so this is um, kind of a forward-thinking comic book. I think the ideas they present are not for now, but for the, the next generation. It's like they're almost preparing them for new ideas in, in human behavior. And I don't know if there's any pushback. I you, I think I posted something recently about how I'll, I think a lot of the old-school comic book guys are bitching and moaning about all the diversity in comic books, which is the dumbest thing I've ever fucking heard of. But um, Saga is a very forward-thinking, and, and, and I love the artwork by Fiona Staples, and I don't think that she gets enough credit, and I don't think there's enough women in comic book art. There's, there's quite a few in writing and editing, but there's hardly any in art right now, and she sets a standard like for independent comics that you got to meet because she, it's amazing art. Oh, God, yeah. And, and again, also storyline-wise, 
this, as you said, it's progressive. I mean, in this series, there are gay characters. There's, there's a trans woman. There's all kinds of, all kinds of stuff. Uh, and no one, it's, in some cases, there's like a couple of gay characters that show up. They exist on a, in a world where, you know, homosexuality is forbidden, so they have to hide who they are. But it's, you know, outside of that, no one, you know, it's like, yeah, our plan's backward because we can't, you know, we have, we have to hide who we are. Everyone else doesn't care. And you're going to see politics of even the different planets show up. Like, there's that uh, planet Sex, uh, Sextillions, which is a huge pleasure planet. And uh, the Will visits that because he discovers that someone else has already got his contract and he's, you know what, heck with it. I'm just going to go and spend these people's money until they, until they realize they gave me an unlimited credit card. <laughs> and, and it's, you know, he ends up running, uh, kind of going around this, this place where hedonism is just abound. So much, you know, sex and, you know, any fetish is catered to. And he's kind of thinking, he's kind of going, it kind of seems safe. And he runs into a, essentially a, a guy who's selling sex slaves, and one of which is a six-year-old girl. Oh, yeah. And, I totally forgot about that story. That's a hell and, of a uh, comic right there. Yeah, because, and it's especially because you have this guy who everyone is, he's a uh, freelancer, he's a murderer. He kills, he kills for money. And everyone's just kind of like, you kill people. How is this, you know, what is the, you can't argue, you know, you kill people, we sell people. Why are you uh, looking down on us? You do horrible things too. And he's like, if you don't understand the difference, you you know, I can't explain it to you. And then he like kills this uh, girl's pimp yeah. and tries to save her, but unfortunately he can't at the moment. There's there's that line there's, between you know this is what I get paid for this is a I'm a for hire but he usually I don't know who he if he particularly just takes out bad guys I don't know what his main goal is but there is that moral code that he has that he will not cross which is extremely admirable and yeah. makes the character instantly like that guy is awesome. Yeah. And what's also nice is you have all these like he is referred to as a monster and he is a very brutal character, but like with all the characters in this. We, you were giving like three dimensional people, not, yeah, he's a, you know, he's the bad guy. He uh, curls his mustache and, you know, says evil things. And that's why we hate him. Like, no, the will is complex. He has, he has feelings. He has emotions. He actually cares about something. You know, he, yeah, he has this line that he will not cross. Yeah, this is you a complex. Like go ahead, sorry. Oh, no. no go ahead. That, that was starting to have a point, but it's, Again, just more continuing on about just, like I said, three-dimensional, these three-dimensional beings. Yeah, and I, I think there might be a slight delay, so I think that's why we're talking to each other. So I apologize if that's what's going on. Um, this is a comic book that I need to revisit, and I apologize for only reading the first six issues. We'll come back to this at some point. I want to get much further into it. Um, definitely worth reading. Different than pretty much anything else I've seen out there because, like I said, it presents a huge all fantasy combined with sci-fi world um but does it get bogged down in the details also the the thing we talked about earlier about the breaking the uh the, the stereotypes and in you know forward thinking is that it's not a gimmick this is its world it's not yeah. to uh, oh hey shock and horror get you to read this no this is a world that they live in yes and it's it also is a series that it's been very consistent which is surprising you would think I think it's around forty eight issues at this point. And at 
they have not had a bad issue. I mean, sure, some things are not as good as maybe a previous issue, but it's never had one where you just go, oh, yeah, you, you know what, just skip that, skip that part, and it, and it won't matter. You, you'll, you'll thank me in the morning if you don't read issues, blah, blah, blah. It's consistently good, but that's also because they take time off in between the, their big arcs. They take like uh, six, you know, like six or so months off to, I guess, formulate their story, get get things going, and then they come out. So it's so treated like a TV had... show then. So you have like your season, then you take the break so the team can take, you know, a rest, rethink things, and build up yeah. the storyline for them. That's actually really smart thinking. I don't know why we have to have an issue every single month because I, I hate it when I get a filler episode or a filler issue yeah. where it's like it's not the same artist, not the same writer, and it's just like this is pointless to the storyline that we're on because you had to meet your deadline. Yeah, and that's like that's one of the best things about being a creator, you know, creator own thing is yeah, they they have their own deadlines, not so much image forcing them to to put things out every single month. And that's I I respect that, but it does make it hurt once you uh have those long gaps because all of a sudden it's just I need more. I'm hooked. I must have some more. Get it in my veins. <laughs> yeah, it, it can be good and also, bad. There are some creators that just leave you hanging forever. I'm never going to forgive Joe Matarira for making me wait around forever for Battle Chasers 13 and then just like, oh, guess what? I'm done. You're like, what? No! <laughs> uh, yeah, that, that's... I kind of have that a little bit, even though they continue the character on. I felt that when they canceled X-23 because it was leading somewhere. And then they then they stopped it, and it's like you get almost like the biggest set of blue balls after that because I know where you're. Well, I don't know where you're going, but I see where you're heading with this. And then, nope, denied. Yeah. Well, at least with comic books, especially if it's from the bigger company, the storyline can continue in a way. It's very hard when that happens with a yeah. TV or a movie because you're like, well, that costs eighty million dollars. So there's no way they're going to continue it. Exactly. Yeah. All right, yeah. our second story is... So that's, tra- oh, what's that? Transmetropolitan, yeah. Yeah, Transmetropolitan. This is one that I sat on for probably 15 years, hemming and hawing. Should I get this? Should I get into it? Because um, my uncle, who is actually only a little bit older than me, he is a huge, massive fan of it. But Vertigo always seemed like a 50-50 shot, whether I'm just going to scratch my head and go, I, I, don't, I don't know what's going on, or like really get into it. And... Um, Transmetropolitan seemed like an idea that my head could not wrap around. It's more challenging than I expected, but um, I got into it. This is Warren Ellis, right? It's Warren Ellis, yeah. Okay. And, I mean, the easiest way to describe Transmetropolitan is imagine uh, Hunter S. Thompson in the future. And Did, that's, that makes sense. Like, actually. if you had just a, yeah, simplify it, the most basic thing, Spider Jerusalem is Hunter S. Thompson. You know what's funny is the artwork reminds and, me of like um, 2000 AD. Something about it. I don't know if the artist is European, but it reminded me of like Judge Dredd in 2000 AD comics. Yeah, Scott Derrickson, not to my knowledge, uh, in British, but yeah, he's his artwork definitely. I, I can agree with that. You know, definitely has that style. But he's also very like he's a man who knows how to fill a page with stuff. Like you, you get some of these huge crowd scenes, and it's just so beautiful especially like that later on the thing they go to that religion convention and you get this uh you know like a page you know get a full page of of all these different uh vendors trying to sell their religion and it's you just everywhere you look on the page is something interesting 
it, and then it, also jokes in the middle of their like the Church of Venice. I, I almost wonder if and this is kind of obscure, but during the seventies and early eighties, uh, the more sophisticated well, Mad Magazine would be considered sophisticated, but like Cracked Magazine and National Lampoon uh, and Mad Magazine every once in a while they would have this art that was super layered, heavily detailed, and um, it kind of also seems like it might have been an influence on the art. That could be. Uh, a big part of it is, this is a future that really does feel, I, I believe that this is going to be our future, because it's wall-to-wall advertising, uh, there's everything about it is crowded and congested. It basically just makes me think about you know, like the last time I was walking down uh, the, the Vegas Strip or last time I was in L.A. on Hollywood. It's like you sit there and just go, yeah, I, I, this, this city feels alive. And it's like when, you think, when I think about a lot of comics where I go, oh, yeah, they have cityscapes, like say Spider-Man or something. New York never really feels alive. You know, it's always kind of, oh, yeah, you'll have crowd scenes. You'll have, you know, people you see a couple of people, you know, bustling around. But in Transmetropolitan, the, the city, the name of the city that we're in, is its own character. And it's, you know, it's like just so interesting to see how they, how Derrickson just puts this place together. Yeah, it's, without it, I think you lose a huge detail. Because, um, I mean, you do have the plot and the driving point, but the whole time, it's a claustrophobic yet open world. Like, every time a different panel shows a different chunk of the city, and you're like, man, this thing is insane. It's, like, so heavily detailed. But it also, like, everything tells you more about, like you said, the city is a character. tells you more about that character. Yeah, and it's, like, especially as you, this is also, if for those who uh, have never read it, this is a very political comic. And, I mean, just the stuff that, that, you, that you dipped into is just kind of the, is a little bit more, I don't want to say random, but it is a little more each issue has uh, kind of like its own little focus on something. Whereas once the actual story starts picking up, it is 100% uh, all about uh, politics, it's about, uh, elect, about elections, uh, and all the, all the back-end, back-end dealing happen. And it's, it's one of the things where I, honestly, between if someone was, they already did Preacher, but if they were going to do a comic, this is the one I would have wanted them to do. Yeah, I remember, um, oh, f- oh my God, Brain Fart, uh, Picard, Professor X, uh, Patrick Stewart. Oh, yeah, uh, yeah. Pat- Patrick Stewart, Stewart really, really wanted to do this after I think the second X-Men came out. Now, reading the comic, I realize he would have been way too old because clearly Spider is probably about 35, maybe 40 at most. So I'm not sure it would have worked. Plus, I, I probably, yeah. he's a madman. I don't know if Patrick Stewart could pull that off. Although, although, I would say this. Technically, since in this world people live longer, I could actually see him being even older because – and this is a lot of stuff that happens later on in the, in the comic, near the end. He really – looks and feels old now huh. there's some reason for that uh i you know not to spoil i'm not gonna spoil anything but there are some reasons for him to kind of seem older than than he could you know could very well be but it always kind of felt like he was yeah like in his 50s or so and just kind of looked really good True. although when we first meet him he basically looks like alan moore <laughs> uh, i was always naked just constantly naked <laughs> yeah 
This, uh, this is a world where people are not afraid of their sexuality. No. Do they explain at all why he ran away and, you know, went out to the woods and, you know, grew the big crazy hair, looking like you said, like Alan oh, Moore? Oh, yeah. He uh, basically he got too big. He wasn't able to get what he what he considers the truth. And he was not able to really tell the story that he wants to tell in, in his own way. And, and also he uh, fell uh he failed to uh, prevent a person called the, they refers to as the beast from being elected. Huh. He's now uh, running for, his, you know, the guy who's going to be running for his third term in the, uh, in the, in the course of the story. Was he orange and had a big mop of rat hair? Talked to in a New York accent at all? <laughs> Please tell um, me it's not prophetic. <laughs> oh, this, what's funny is this comic is very, was very prophetic. It was like, it, it came out around the time of the 2000 election, but if you, once you get a little bit further, actually, it should be in the next in their next collection. The third uh, third collection has them dealing with like the uh, the election and going to some of the rallies. And yeah, some of these rallies seem very much like Trump. And uh, what's funny is you can look at this from both sides of the spectrum because they never say which political parties these characters belong to. They're just this party and that party. Well, that's smart thinking. But you can. Yeah, you can, but you can easily, and this works for both sides. If you're liberal, you can definitely say, "Oh yeah, these, you know, these people are very obviously the evil liberals." Uh, or it's like, if you're liberal, you can think these are evil conservatives. Conservatives, these are the evil liberals. You know, you can. It's done in such a way that whatever your political leaning is, you can kind of see them, you know, doing the things that that you would disagree with. But, that's, that's what I like I, about Warren Ellis is. I think I feel like Warren Ellis is the kind of guy that just steps back when it comes to political issues and goes, "Look, you were all fucked up. <laughs> I'm I'm out of this one." Yeah, yeah, and it's like, and part of it's like I would sit there and go, "The nationalism of the beasts uh, definitely kind of sparks far more of a conservative politics in our country today than than the other, the smiling, yeah, who kind of is just like totally just obviously fake." Yeah, this is the only thing that's unrealistic, like not prophetic, is I don't see reporters making a whole lot of money in the future. It feels like reporters now are being minimized because newspapers don't sell, and then everything's on the web, and everybody wants it for free. So therefore, reporting is getting like low pay. Yeah, yeah. See, you would you would not have the uh, the same type of apartment that he ultimately gets in in the rich part of town. Yeah. You make some serious demands. I'm like, no, there's no way that's going to happen in the future. <laughs> You're not going to get an apartment paid for and all the all your bills paid for and, and huge wages. Yeah, but that is, but then also because he is essentially a rock star who, uh, in in this world, then that he kind of would demand that. But there's just you can't that the, the idea of future journalism is so is so strange in this in this world. But yeah. then again, so are some of the weapons too. What do you think of the bowel disruption? Oh boy, he can set it to prolapse, which horrified me. I was like, "Oh no, that's wrong." Oh. <laughs> no, when they get, they have uh, ter- even worse settings than that. I think, if I remember right, one is referred to as "shat into unconsciousness." Oh my god! <laughs> well, that, that's a great thing, though, is that he had a sense yes. of humor about this instead of it being. That's why it also reminded me of British comics because they have a way of tackling like these big ideas with tons of satire. Whereas I think sometimes American comics are too straightforward and dead serious, and this would be like, oh, some you know, this is an important comic. It can be important, but at the same time, you can have you can laugh at it a little bit. 
Yeah, that's like I go I go back to the religious one because that's definitely a something that's very personal to a lot of people. And but you as you read this, you kind of you can see he is making a lot of points about a, you know not necessarily your religion is bad, but there are people out there who will do a product even though it is you know under the guise of this is the truth and it's obviously a you know big bunch of lies you know it's like and it's like at least one of the one of the, the church of Tem- uh trepanation where like yeah we'll go and have you uh i'll hit you in the head with this big uh metal spike and it'll save and it'll get all the demons out of your head and then as as they're having an argument over this the uh the guy i think he loses his uh his little uh like his trepanation scar falls off or something like that. Huh. Yeah. Otherwise, I think... it's not I'm thinking of another guy he's lying about, but. Yeah. I got the absolute transmetropolitan, which is a, a huge, it's huge. It's not really like an omnibus, but it did it in large print, like super, like a treasury size edition. So you get to see the details way better than you would in the normal trade paperbacks. Yeah, those, yeah, that, and getting that detail also, like I said, because these things are so filled with stuff, being able to have that detail and that that size would definitely help out. I've just got the standard standard trades for these. When it comes to like the Vertigo comic book line and, and like the rise of the more mature stuff in the uh, late eighties, early nineties, people tend to put Morrison, Moore, and Ellis kind of in the same group with like the big sci-fi ideas and really elaborate storytelling. And I've always had trouble with Alan Moore. It makes me feel like a philistine. I, I get Morrison. I get Ellis. Um, do you, are you good with all three of them, or do you have ones where you have issues? There's, I have actually I have a lot of issues with Ellis's work uh, outside uh, outside of the uh, like transmetropolitan stuff, like when he was doing uh, let's see when he was doing X Men and no I think Grant, uh, well when he was doing X Men I did have a little bit of issue with that Grant Morrison I love except for when Grant Morrison decides that he wants to be philosophical because then it then he can either be amazingly brilliant, like with uh, Animal Man, or complete and total garbage uh, when he was trying to deconstruct Batman with Batman RSP and uh, Final Crisis and all that. Yeah, Final Crisis was a like, bit... Stop at the crisis, DC. Just stop doing crisis storylines. <laughs> but yeah, but it's like, and same thing, Alan, Alan Moore, he's too brilliant for his own good. I just feel like a smut. Like, like when people tell me, "Oh, uh, Alan Moore, you gotta, you gotta read The Watchmen, you gotta read V for Vendetta," and I'm like, "I, I can I just watch the movie and save myself a little bit." Okay, so I'm, I'm a stupid moron. Thank you. <laughs> yeah, Watchmen is amazing, and uh, yeah, not not as much on the V V for Vendetta. His uh, his Swamp Thing run is is amazing, but you sit there and also go League of Extraordinary Gentlemen. It's great. It's great. It's garbage. Oh, yeah. <laughs> you know, I will not watch the like, movie. No, I read the comic book. The comic book was awesome. The movie, I'm just sitting there going, yeah. oh, I've made a huge mistake. <laughs> but what even then, with the comic book, it's like the first two arcs are sublime. And then he kind of kept going with stuff. And, yeah, you you feel incredibly stupid because it, it is one of the most literate comics ever. But it's, too, like I said, too smart for its own good because – it's like I'm I'm, re- I'm reasonably intelligent, but God, I don't know all your references, man. Stop, just stop making me feel dumb. Yeah, it's too British. I don't understand all. That. <laughs> yeah. Um, before we wrap up this episode, I like to talk to my guest about what they're currently reading and or what would they recommend to the listeners. Well, uh, currently reading 
Let's see, I've got uh, Wolverine. I'm a huge, huge fan of, of former X-23. And, and that, that issue, uh, that, that run so far uh, for all new Wolverine is, is so great. Uh, I'm also doing Doctor Strange. Old school or new that. schools? Uh, new school Doctor Strange. Okay. Uh, I'm also reading Monstrous. Oh, from uh, Marjorie Liu and oh, it's uh, it's just fan, uh, kind of we were talking about fantasy. This uh-huh. one's a little bit, leans a little bit more in kind of a hardcore, everything is serious thing, which uh, there's kind of like a war between kind of humans and monster kin. I guess would be a way to describe them. Uh, and this one woman, uh, young younger girl actually, has she has like this vendetta against a few people who killed her mom and she starts like oh, this thing inside her awakens and it's like an old like an old god that uh is always hungry and is kind of guiding her on its own on its own uh mission to do things and it's what i think 13 issues out currently and it is it is amazing great artwork uh it is i will say a little dense to get into so you're gonna have to be willing to Give things a shot for that one. Give it a little bit of time. Yeah, I'm, I'm looking here but at the detail, is, and it said all, all I have to read is steampunk meets kaiju, and I'm like, I'm in. <laughs> yeah, it is. Yeah, it, there's a lot, a lot in that, and it's it is definitely worth checking out. I think you can buy. I think uh, they have like the first issue where you can buy that for really cheap, like a buck or something. Yeah, on the uh, Image website, it's four ninety nine per issue, but I'm sure somebody out there has like a. Well, it says triple size first issue, sixty six pages of stories yeah. for five bucks. That's not bad. Yeah, it's it is really good. I I strongly recommend that one. Uh, on the other end of the fancy spectrum, I'm also reading Rat Queens. I don't know that one either. Well, I'm really out like, of loop. Yeah. Well, it's like I, as much as I like superhero comics, I've been been more and more fading away from specific ones and just kind of going to these oddball uh, oddball indies. And Rat Queens is take you know take take your fantasy stuff and again it's more hardcore fantasy world than than saga or anything like that. Well, the the bonus take, take like traditional thoughts. The, you take take yeah. those take that traditional thought and then throw in the most foul, vulgar uh, uh, characters imaginable. <laughs> the thing about independent comics compared to you the know, mainstream drug- ones are the fact that you get drowned in all the details. Independent comics can kind of like clean the palette you know just like start over fresh so you don't have to read 40 years worth of history exactly and what's nice about this is they relaunched this recently where you can you can you know find the trades of the first the first run of it but even if you had never read that before you could jump into the new run and still have the still still get what's going on get all the character dynamics and everything good so it's like it's it's open enough to, to work but yeah, it's like it's got like a, a rockabilly uh, sorceress, a hipster cleric, a uh, little like like halfling character that's like perpetually on drugs. <laughs> it's just all kinds of it's all kinds of stuff like that, and it's just it is it's just a lot of fun. Uh, and it's like they've got some serious stuff in it. Uh, like I guess the current arc has them dealing with uh, someone who's essentially removing people from from the world. Weird. Like I, I can, I will say, you know, I, I can save you, and this all of a sudden, you know, this person is erased from existence. No one, you know, most people can't remember that this person ever was. Huh. 
That can't be good. That's kind of reminds me of the, uh, I don't know if you ever read it, but um, uh, Justice League Generation Lost, where Max Lord comes back, but he decides to use his tele- telepathic powers to block out his existence and block out other people that he chooses. And no one can seem to remember him except for the core group uh, that was there when he first joined the Justice League, like uh, Booster Gold, Blue Beetle, uh, Power Girl, and stuff like that. And uh, th- that was an interesting idea, but... Um, sadly, it was only twenty five issues. Yeah, yeah. It's it's always fun to fun to find things like that where you kind of you mess with you mess with reality, and then everything that you thought you knew about something all of a sudden is you know turns out to be a lie. Or and under good writing, yeah, that throwing that bring that carpet right out from under you is amazing. All right. Anything else you want to suggest before we go? Uh, let's see. Anything else? Definitely. Oh, if you've uh, never read it, and since we're We've been talking about Vertigo a lot. Uh, definitely check out The Sandman if you haven't. Yeah, my sister Gaiman's, loves uh, that comic, and I've, I always like look at it and go, uh, maybe later. I've been saying that for 20 years. <laughs> it's, another, it's another one of those things where you could feasibly pick up almost any art, and, it'll, and it's a standalone story, even though there's a greater you know, story that progresses. Almost every single art is its own tale. Well, that's good. That way you don't get drowned. And not, in, well, I mean, I, there's always a big picture, but it's nice when you don't have to read, like, if I start this, I have to ride this all the way to the end, and I don't know if I have that kind of patience. Yeah. I mean, heck, I, I, own, I have owned the entire, the entire series. I sold, uh, the, uh, in the trades anyway, the eighth volume, because it's, a, it's they've like, essentially two, short, two or three short story collections. Mm-hmm. It's like individual issues. They're just their own little thing. The world's end is the least, my least favorite part of that thing. And there's there's some in, there's a couple of good stories in it, but not enough that I'm like, eh, I can sell this and get get something else. But beyond that, it's like everything else about it, I think is it's some of the best storytelling in comics. All right, well that's good to know. I'm, I'm eventually I'm going to get to it. I, I'm assuming I'm going to read all the comics I've been like sitting on forever, and I will like, all right, I'll do this now. You know, I never know if I'm going to get to it. I I have a stack uh, that's so big filled with graphic novels and comics I just I keep putting off because I get something else that piques my interest more. And I'm like, yeah, someday. Um, I got to stop doing that, really. My stack's getting too big. Yeah, I know. That's that's my fear, too. Is there, I keep coming across stuff that interests me where my, my girlfriend uh, has started reading Squirrel Girl. And we we started not current, but... We've been picking up all the back issues for the for the run, and there's two you know two number ones because they relaunched the series like eight issues in. Mm. So it's like we're having to collect the, the first run of this and then this one. Now, do we have issue eight of this one or this one? And it's, you know, we got a nice nice big stack that we're eventually going to get through. It, it does that get on your nerves, and they're constantly rebooting. It seems like Marvel is doing it all the time. DC's kind of bad with it too, but. And like someone said, hey, do you want to read? Uh, let's do an episode about Nova, and then like let's also do an episode about Moon Knight. And I'm like, which version? There's like so many of them. Seems like every time they get yeah. going, they get canceled. Yes, yeah, that's with Deadpool, especially right now. So many, aside from so many Deadpool comics that exist, it's which run are you would, would you ever try and, and try and read? Because it's like, yeah, this run is good. This run is good. This run's garbage. This don't read. Don't read the uh, Gary Duggan stuff with Brian Posehn because it's. It's terrible, but the stuff he did, you know, solo is better. Interesting. The stuff with Brian Posehn's like, back, because I was thinking of getting it, but I'm glad you warned me. I did not like it. 
I like I liked the idea of it more so than actually reading it. I gave up pretty early on that first arc. Hmm. Although it is funny because it is Deadpool versus the ghosts of presidents. Of what? Like you would think that'd be. Oh, he's fighting uh, evil dead presidents. Oh, okay. <laughs> it's like they go. It's a hilarious concept. I did not like it. <laughs> it's, yeah, it's just like the idea is great, but the follow through sucked. Yeah. Well, anything else oh, you want to say before we go? Yeah. Anything you want to pitch? Doomsday Clock. What's that? Actually, actually, it's gonna be Doomsday Clock. If you haven't done that, definitely uh, that and Watchmen because Doomsday Clock is as much as it is a continuation of uh, of uh, the Rebirth stuff. It's a sequel to Watchmen. Okay, which I know is ruffled a, a lot of feathers out there. Oh, I I'm loving it. They're everyone's doing like really setting out their best work on that. It's I'm I'm enjoying it so much, and it honestly I'm kind of glad they're finally you know finally finishing up with uh, that rebirth thread that that they were hanging you know they've left it hanging for so long. All right, everybody. All the, oh, oh yeah, it's not, there's always a delay. There's a delay, and I have oh, no. no idea how to end this episode because every time I go, I stop and you stop and then go and then go. <laughs> no, go yeah, you go ahead and cut. Go ahead and cut that. Oh, okay. That's hard for me. Um, hey everybody, check out John on his other, you guessed on, what did we just watch on a regular basis? That's a really great podcast where they, they, they pick these head scratchy, strange movies to discuss and kind of like decipher the oddness of it all. Yeah, it's a lot of fun and a lot of weird movies. We get to watch them so you don't have to. <laughs> well, it Let's also makes it more enticing. You guys have discussed a few, uh, where I'm just like, no, I need to go watch this now. Yeah, that's, that's the idea. And you know, sometimes if even if we don't like it, I would say rec- you know I would recommend watching some of these movies sometimes. Okay, and the rest of the stuff that you listen to with us, uh, you can catch on uh, "Ouch My Ego," or you can check it out on my network, Retro Rock Entertainment. There's a there's a page up for "Ouch My Ego" and for Retro Rock Entertainment. Are you guys up on Facebook, or is it like its own thing? You're not really part of that though. You're a guest. Uh, so I shouldn't be asking you. I'm sorry. <laughs> I'm a guest, but it is on it is on Facebook. It is on Twitter. Uh, there is. It is on uh, Ouch My Ego as well. Okay. And uh, everybody, have a good night. Thank you, John, for being the guest. Thank you for having me. to back in tunes uh we are now in our third year we're almost to our 100th episode and i decided the show needs a little bit of change uh basically because jacob the co-creator of this show got really jealous when i would do other episodes with people and he's like but i wanted to discuss that i'm trying to think of another concept and i had it in mind but it felt similar to something that my guest this episode does and i we discussed it and you seem to be cool with it my guest is ken reed how's it going ken how are you Good, how are you? All right. I'm really glad to finally do this concept. I kept holding off for a while because you do a podcast, which uh, you should probably explain it because I'm not good at that kind of stuff. I end up like sure things. <laughs> well, you're you're assuming I am good at it, and that's uh, that's a that's a poor assumption on your part. Um, no, basically, I, uh, I I've been doing stand up for years, and I love pop culture stuff, but it never really figured into my act at all. It's all stories about growing up and stuff. But I own more or less every issue of TV Guide from about 1965 to around the year 2000. 
And when people would come over my house and they were hanging out, I have them all in this kind of spinning rack in the corner of my house. You know, people would grab an old issue and kind of flip through and go, oh, I remember this show. Oh, I used to watch this. And a friend of mine, a Boston comedian, Sean Sullivan, said, hey, just do this as a podcast. <laughs> and so that's essentially what it is. Somebody basically picks an old issue of TV Guide. They go through primetime that week and, and we talk about what they would watch. Yeah, I was, and uh, occasionally, okay. oh, sorry, I was just going to say, occasionally we're not that strict with the format because I've weirdly been lucky enough to have a bunch of people on who have been on a lot of the stuff that we watch. And then in that case, it's a little more of kind of a straight interview. But that's that's the basic concept. Yeah. And with this uh, new direction in the show, the idea was if you were to have like your own station and you could be the programmer of the perfect Saturday morning, what block would you build? And, you know, it's right. kind of something I was hemming and hawing. I was like, do I do six to eight cartoons or is it a top ten kind of thing? But I kept holding off because I started listening to your show last summer. And I was like, crap, this is kind of in the <laughs> same realm. And uh, I kept holding off. But you and I discussed it and you, you're cool with it. So I'm not I, I don't feel like I'm a thief. Oh, yeah. No, it's totally different. And I also like I definitely don't think my concept is that uh, novel. So <laughs> I don't know. I haven't yeah, heard I'm anything totally else cool. like this. And you, and you do deep dive like pop culture stuff on your show because uh, for most people, their memories of TV shows tend to be what was the most popular, like the top 20 shows and everything else kind right. of fades away. But you grab a mixture of both and that way it connects to general audiences. But if you're like a total TV nerd, you're like, holy crap, I can't believe they're even discussing this. This is awesome. <laughs> Yeah, and it's not even – it's funny because a lot of that stuff isn't even in an attempt to be like what's the what's something people haven't heard of before or – it's kind of just I literally watched way too much TV and I would catch these shows just by happenstance, you know, these either like mid-season replacements or one-time aired only. And I've noticed that when I've found other people that have also kind of seen those, you instantly have this kind of kinship. Like, I thought I was the only person on earth who had seen that. And it's uh, it's kind of a cool shared experience among people who may have nothing else in common. Yeah, and uh, with this show, it's kind of in the same vein where we do discuss the most popular cartoons. But we'll also go, like, really obscure, like, stuff that lasted, like, 13 episodes, 6 episodes. Stuff that was, like, just there to sell toys. Or every once in a while, right. we'll find a pilot episode of something, and we'll discuss that. It started off as commentary tracks, and we realized we were filling a lot of dead air, and it seemed like we were exhausting. <laughs> right. I was like, do we really need to discuss the Battletoads pilot ep uh, episode for, like, 30 minutes? Do we really need to do this? So it's I kind think of you do. What's that? I think you do. Somebody has to. Oh, God, it was miserable. That is the one mystery episode of our show. It was so terrible that 15 minutes into it, we quit, and then I accidentally erased it. At one point, accidentally, I did. I know. I think there was a lot of <laughs> being dropped, and we're just like ready to right. cry. We're like, I can't do this anymore. <laughs> I, I, uh, one of my other hobbies is I've been a tape trader for years since I was like 11 or 12 years old, and you know, moved into DVD trading. And I collect sort of full broadcasts of shows that aired, like you know, two hour blocks of TV with commercials. And Saturday mornings are actually the first thing that I started trading, so I have probably maybe a thousand hours of Saturday morning blocks from various years. And I just got about 10 new ones uh, this week, which is surprising because I thought I had, I had like every single thing that was out there. Yeah. And this guy had some from like mid eighties, late eighties. I had never seen that he had taped himself. And there was a show that I had never even heard of on there. And it? I looked it up. It was called the little wizards. I don't remember that at all. 
1988. It was on ABC. It was kind of a ripoff of like Sword in the Stone um, and Gummy Bears. It was about this kid who was the true heir to the throne, but was hiding out with a wizard and was learning magic and had inadvertently created these three bumbling monsters. It was a terrible show. <laughs> and this particular episode was incredible, though, because it had the most on the nose drug allegory I've ever seen in my life. <laughs> Literally these two black goblins who look like the most offensive racial cartoons uh, go to these new goblins and they're like, hey, man, buy some of these puff pods. Oh, you <laughs> oh, no way. How did oh, that it's, pass? It's, How did that pass with the FCC? I don't know. And they're literally smoking them. They look like joints. They're smoking them. They're called puff pods. One of them starts a fire at one point and, and the fire gets put out and they're like, what are you doing? You need to. They, we almost caught on fire. And he goes, "Hey, man, it's out, isn't it? Who cares?" <laughs> That's strange. Um, the one cart. No, actually, there's two cartoons, and I, I think I was asking you if you had them. And they're so rare and so lost. Yet they were on, I think, for a full season, but no one knows what the hell I'm talking about. Was there was a right. Wolfman Jack cartoon? I think that was 13 yep. episodes. And, called uh, Wolf Rock. What's that? It was called Wolf Rock. Was it called Wolf Rock? Maybe that's why I can't yeah. find. It. I've been putting in the wrong title. Yeah, it was called Wolf Rock. I, I've only seen a little bit of it. Yeah, and the other one is Meatballs I... and Spaghetti, which was a rock yes. and roll, like husband and wife, and I think they had a dog with them. I only have vague memories of it. I've seen a picture of it, and that's it. I can't find anything else. Yeah, they were Hanna Barbera. I know of the shows, and I've seen clips. The uh, USA Cartoon Express in the late '80s oh God, so uh, used to show all the Ruby Spears and all the Hanna Barbera cartoons, and went really deep. and And that essentially is what created Cartoon Network. It was that that company owned all that back catalog and kind of spun that that block into a whole network. But they did air Meatball and Spaghetti a couple times, and so I do remember seeing it in the late '80s. And it was yeah, it was basically a, a cartoon about Meatloaf, the the singer. Basically. Yeah, if you wanted to boil it down to what was well, Meatball, uh, Meatloaf wasn't even that popular, I think, at the time. So he was kind of like uh, in that break where he lost his voice and he had a nervous breakdown or something. So it's not like he was a household oh, yeah. name to six-year-olds. It's kind of a strange choice. Yeah, and, very, very weird. Yeah, it's the '80s is the strangest period for animation for me because I would say 50% of it was all to sell a toy line that was created beforehand, and then the rest of it was Ruby Spears, Hanna Barbera. Yeah, absolutely. And they were just bizarre um, concoctions where they were just mixing like licensed properties and ripoffs and just throwing anything at the wall with these old men trying to basically figure out, um, you know, anything. And I don't think the revolution really started. I think the first like fire across the bow. Is that did I just make up that saying? Is that a thing? I think it did. That's a pretty good saying, though. Um, was the Mighty Mouse. The revival of Mighty Mouse was the first time you're right. like, oh, this can be different and smart and like insider jokes. Yeah, because you started to get a, a, a generation of people making things that grew up on cartoons. So they knew that language. And, and in the past, all the guys who were making cartoons for television were sort of old guys who worked in other fields first. So they were kind of making it up as they went along. But these were people who grew up watching cartoons and kind of had learned that language and were playing with it. And it was really interesting. And, yeah, that led directly to the sort of Nicktoons creator-owned cartoons that really changed everything. Yeah, I think before that, I look – at the guys that used to do the Warner Brothers cartoons, the Tom and Jerry, you know, the, the studio uh, shorts, you know, they were in theaters, yep. high production values. And then they had to go yeah. down to doing an episode for $5,000 in a week. And it's, I think it kind of broke their creativity. So that's why I think that late 70s, early 80s is probably the 
weakest era of animation. Absolutely. And I mean, they were really like, all right, I guess I'll do a cartoon about disco ducks. I don't know any, you know, whatever <laughs> you want. Like they had no. Yeah. Or that um, time traveling one with uh, the Fonz. Oh, that is weird. That's another one which yeah. is hard to find, but I'm not exactly looking for it. <laughs> I do have all of those. I, I would copy them for you if you want, but I don't know if you want them. Yeah, well, <laughs> they were no, real bad. Eventually, the goal of the show is to be kind of a history. Kind of, We talk about this popular stuff, but I think every cartoon, no matter how good or bad, needs to be discussed and rediscovered. Uh, because just because I think it's the worst thing ever, I know there's someone out there who thinks it's the best thing ever and vice versa. And oh, sure. you need to kind of record that because there's certain things in media that people just eh, cast aside like martial arts movies of the late 80s early 90s that went straight to video no one cares about those but i want to discuss them i want people to know yeah. about them. same thing for animation shows that just for some reason didn't connect with people yeah and there are some hidden gems in there for sure uh there's a lot of garbage but it can be highly entertaining <laughs> and speaking of i guess this brings us to the time where you reveal your perfect saturday morning yeah, so I used to get up at about 5 a.m. on Saturday mornings uh, here in the Boston area, and I would literally sit and wait for the station to sign on. <laughs> so some, that. yeah, sometimes it wouldn't be like sometimes I'd get up at like 4:30 and I'd just sit for like a half hour waiting for TV to start, no. and I'm not 91 years old. Yeah, well, I've heard on your show that you suffered from severe insomnia. So were you staying yeah. really late and just getting up really early? Yeah, basically, I would I would stay up until about oh like maybe two or three in the morning every night, and I, yeah, I would be up like five, maybe six at the latest. It's weird when I was a kid, yeah. I could sleep like a rock, but I would get up really early for cartoons. But uh, it started about six or seven years ago is when I just found I mornings suck. I don't want to be anywhere near mornings, and I did, I mm -hmm. have suffered from severe insomnia. I was a surveillance agent for a while. You have to stay up all oh. night. And it would screw up my sleep pattern so bad that I would go days with like an hour of sleep, maybe two hours of sleep. I like you get obsessive about it sometimes. You're like counting, like okay, so if I go to bed now, I can get four and a half hours. That is right. consistent sleep. Can I do that? It, it's kind of a weird thing. Did it? Did it bug you? You so used to it. I got so used to it. I mean, there's definitely when there would be like three or four days when you haven't slept and you might have experienced this as well, you would start hallucinating a little bit yeah. because your brain needs to dream. It's like an important function of your brain health. And your brain would literally be like, look, man, if you're not going to sleep, I'm just going to do this anyway. So uh, well, you might want to sit down. And I, you know, I felt sick all the time. My eyes always burned. I felt I had headaches. But, you know, I, I always felt like that. So until when I was maybe 22 and started sleeping most of the night. And I was like, wow, you don't have to feel like garbage all the time. Yeah. It's weird. And it just kind of stopped. I don't know. Yeah. But, but at the same time, it, you know, it, it, um, it was kind of good in that I got, I really got to watch a ton of stuff and got exposed to a ton of stuff that became really like lifelong loves that I just never would have seen before. It's funny, the uh, the stuff that you probably got over in Boston and what I got in Fort... Do you know Fort Wayne, Indiana at all? Have you ever heard of it? Uh, a little bit. Yeah, it, yeah. It's about a population of like 250. It's probably about the third or fourth biggest city in Indiana. But when it came to yeah. oddball stuff, the, Indiana will have none of that. So we didn't get any like the weird, obscure <laughs> stuff. We didn't get the cool cable channels. And we definitely didn't get any anime. I never even saw a, a cartoon as like, groundbreaking and popular as Voltron until... like. The, the late 90s right and that was you probably didn't have a lot of uhf stations right and we had one it was uh 55 fox well it was, it was 55 yeah. and then it became fox when all those stations came out or all the shows came out 
before that was all that syndicated filler. So a lot of the cartoons yep. they got were those toy, basically toy commercials that were a half hour long. Yep, visionaries. Oh, sectars. Like that kind of stuff. Yeah, yeah. Uh, we were lucky, like, and I and I realized, and I think I brought this up in my show before, where we got a bunch of anime in Boston that only aired in certain certain markets. Like there was a show called Star Blazers in the U.S. that was like a really weird space opera show that was actually pretty high-minded that aired in Boston. And for the kids of a certain generation that saw it, it stuck with them big time. And really the only other market it aired in was like Seattle and Hawaii because they were a company that, you know, like cities that had a trade deal basically with Asia. And so we did get a lot of weird stuff. Like we got Simba and um, Ultraman and, and all kinds of weird Asian shows. And I think just because we were a port city uh that was kind of the, the easy business deals they could make yeah it's it's funny the people i do the show with are mostly west coast you know big cities in california or portland and they'll mm -hmm. like oh yeah i watched all these anime cartoons as a kid i'm like i've never even i never even heard of star blazers until a couple months ago when someone requested that we do it and i'm like what is right. this and it was strange watching because there's full arcs it's it's not oh, yeah. like one episode you're done one episode you're done which is what most american animation is this the storylines would go for like six to eight episodes you're like oh this is like what tv is now yeah there was a weird revolution in asia where they didn't treat animation as a genre for children they just treated it as a genre so it was like you can do a movie for adults or for children just like you can with a, a you know a live action movie it doesn't matter that it's animated and we started trying to get that here in the mid 80s sort of after heavy metal was big and you got movies like um uh Star Chaser the Legend of Orin and these yeah, and, and um it didn't really work. And every few years they'll try it again like um what was that one from the early 2000s that Matt Damon did oh, a voice in it was called Yes, yeah, they'll try to they'll try to do it. it still doesn't hit here for whatever reason. Yeah, it's been relegated basically to low budget direct to video. Like Warner Brothers and Marvel have really kept up with those movies. I, I would say Warner Brothers right. movies are much much better. But at least they mm -hmm. know there's an audience out there above the age of 10 that wants to see animation. I just wish other studios would say, hey, how about we actually get a full theater production? You know, I think uh, there's also Spirits. What is that? Final Fantasy Spirits Within? They also try. Oh, yeah, yeah. It's yeah. Like, yeah, we get fits and spurts where it's like, oh, yeah, grown-ups like cartoons, too. They're not all about talking animals with the IQ of a pumpkin. Um, right. I think Pixar is the only thing out there that's really treated for everybody. And even those, like, I still have a problem with, I mean, I grew up, and, I'll, and some of my picks will reflect this, but I grew up watching a lot of the old Fleischer cartoons and a lot of those really bizarre 1930s, 1940s, 1950s cartoons like Felix and, and all that kind of stuff that were not really made for children and could be scary and weird and bizarre, but everybody it kind of appealed to. And when I watch sort of the Pixar movies and the new Disney movies, and I have friends, you know, who, who have kids and they'll be like, oh, but there's stuff in there for the parents. When I watch it, the stuff in there for the parents is all the really dated references and like having a character be like, you go, girl. Yeah, and like that kind of stuff. It's safe grown up. It's not really like skewed towards them. It just if you happen to be watching this with your kid, you'll kind of get this. Yeah, it's not really smart grown up. Yeah. Animation wasn't originally intended just for kids. A lot of people seem to think that the Looney Tunes are like, oh, they're so offensive. Uh, well, some are actually literally offensive because they were of a certain time period. But I mean, because of the violence or right, the mature absolutely. tone. But I was like, yeah, but those were meant for people our age. They weren't necessarily meant for little kids. Yeah. Oh, for certain. But they aired for kids when we were growing up because it was super cheap content. Yeah, 
I guess a gig, the catalog, whatever. That's the irony of it is the minute they started selling it on network television is when the shorts in the theaters started to die in popularity. And you can see the budgets just getting cut and cut and cut. And the last man standing is Woody Woodpecker of all of them, <laughs> which is a surprise. Right. Right. And that's why Hanna-Barbera really had that innovation where they were like, how cheap can we make a cartoon and we can sell it to, to television, yeah. um, which was because they were noticing this sort of second life for these theatrical cartoons with like the Popeye shorts and the Looney Tunes airing on those afternoon kids shows, you know, with like a local affiliate having a clown host the show or whatever. Um, and so he. You know, we did. We actually had a Bozo the Clown franchise show here for years, and my dad was on it as a kid in 1963, and I hunted down a copy of the episode that him and my uncle are on, and they're like maybe six or seven years old, and the end of the show, my dad is dancing with a robot to a song called Chicken Curry. <laughs> I was on one. We, had, we didn't have a Bozo the Clown unless you had cable. If you're lucky enough to have cable back in the 80s, we had WGN with uh, Bozo. But, uh, yeah, Superstation. Yeah, uh, I missed that. I missed that game where you would drop the ball. What's that? I can't remember what it's called. Oh, yeah. The yeah, yeah, bins. yeah. And you'd, you'd get the big prize chest. Yeah, but you'd watch them and go, come on, I can make that. Oh, I can make that one, too. Just look at me on that show. <laughs> My dad won a prize in that on the episode he's on, and he won a toy called an Okinawa gun. What's and that? it's this, like giant machine gun with images of just, like, Japanese people being <laughs> shot on it. What? That's, in that, 1963, it's crazy. <laughs> I, I still wonder, though, with the guns that we had as, uh, you know, you're an 80s kid, I'm an 80s kid. We had toy guns that looked real. We had Uzi. Yeah, they were called. How are we not all dead? M-Tech. What's that? Oh, yeah. Remember, M-Tech was the company. They made these motorized water guns that yeah. looked like real Uzis. You had fired. a battery yeah. in it or something? Yeah, yeah. I had the A-Team collection, which had like a real looking knife and a 45 and a machine gun. You're just like, I can't believe we're all still alive. Oh, totally. I remember they uh, they released a M-Tech released a huge buck knife that looked exactly like a buck knife, like a Rambo knife, but it shot water out of it. What? Was it that... was made for like water fights. That makes no sense. None at all. <laughs> you know, we, we've kind of gone off the path here. We still I'm very started. sorry. I could, I could probably talk about cartoons like for four hours straight, but then I'd pass out. Um, yeah. Let's, let's actually go back to where we were. Uh, how do you start off your Saturday morning? Yes, yeah, sorry. So I would get up very early. Uh, I would I would have multi-course meals. So it would have like I'd make myself pancakes. I'd make myself cereal. So I would be eating all morning. Uh, and at 5 a.m., I am starting off with uh, the Herculoids because I used to love the world of Hanna-Barbera that used to air um, in the in the early 80s. And it would be Herculoids, Space Ghost. Um, they would sometimes show the old Fantastic Four, but uh, I always loved the Herculoids. That's the one with Shmi, right? The little white glue yes. uh, glob. Didn't he go well, on to his well, own show? Well. Am I wrong? Well, the Shmoo, the Shmoo originally started as part of a different cartoon, and then they sort of reappropriated those characters for Herculoids. Yeah, I remember that. I also remember that terrible Fantastic Four when they replaced uh, the Human Torch with a robot, Herbie. Yeah, 1978. And they did that. The rumor was they did that because they didn't want kids like lighting themselves aflame. But the real reason was because Marvel was actually licensing their characters individually. So the Human Torch had his own cartoon. And if you have you ever seen the Thing cartoon? I didn't realize he had his own. Oh, my God. So they they 
they licensed the thing to Ruby Spears and they redid the whole origin. They kept the look of the character and the name, but the thing became a teenager who had a, a ring called the thing ring. And he, when he needed to help, he would go thing ring, do your thing. And then all these orange rocks would like come flying in onto his body and he would turn into the thing. Okay. So they just made up their own origin, like completely erased Comple everything that we love about the thing and just go, eh, we'll just make it up. Absolutely. Oh. Yeah, the funny thing is, not a lot of people remember that The Thing was very, very popular, late 70s, early 80s. He had his own comic series for, I think, four or five years. And yeah, Marvel 2 and 1 was him as well. He had several. That's right. He was huge, and I don't think people like The Fantastic Four so much now. Clearly, from the movies, uh, the right. directors don't get it either. Well, they haven't been great. <laughs> I'm still waiting for it, and I think Marvel needs to take that back and control it. But I still think people are like, eh, we've seen enough. It's going to be a while. Yeah, and I don't know how much that would translate. Like, the Silver Surfer is a cool, weird, very 60s character that seems like the silliest, dumbest thing ever in a movie. Yeah, well, he had his own cartoon, too, which was actually a lot smarter than I remembered it being. I watched it recently, and I go, oh, this is good. Yeah, the 90s cartoon, it was on around the same time as the uh, Spider-Man cartoon and the, the Hulk one, I think, right? Yeah. The 90s Hulk? Yeah, Marvel nice. was having that revival in the 90s, but... Uh... Back to Herculoids, that is one that we haven't covered yet, and I've been kind of like hemming and hawing. Like, how do I – I try to do double features, try to find cartoons that fit with another one, like a popular one with an obscure one. Uh, right. But I haven't really found one that goes with Herculoids yet. I probably could have done, like, um, some sort of – I have one. My second pick is one that I think goes with it. Okay, go ahead. Thundar the Barbarian. Yeah, that's the one I was trying to say. I was going to say the Barbarian, but all of a sudden my brain, like, vanished and said, I don't know what the, the previous word is. <laughs> Right, right. I think they go very well. And Thundar is ridiculously dark. Yeah. The opening credits talk about how in 1997 the Earth was uh, basically cut in half by a by an atomic war. <laughs> this cartoon is what the Planet of the Apes cartoon should have been. That one yes. disappointed me so much. And then you watch uh, Thundar and you're like, oh, they got the post-apocalyptic thing right. Totally. Yeah, it's, uh, it's a pretty good show. It, you know what? Uh, I forgot. We combined it with Fist of the North Star, which now I regret combining the two. I was like, oh, post oh yeah, so that's not the right duo. No, that doesn't work at all. That's far too fancy. Lot, apparently. Well, sometimes we make mistakes. <laughs> I make a lot of those mistakes. <laughs> yeah. All right. What do we have after Thundar? So now we're up to 6 a.m., so I'm kind of like a little bit more, uh, you know, awake at this point. And I am definitely going with the completely misadventures, the completely mental misadventures of Ed Grimley. Oh, my God. I can't believe you just said that one. We were talking about this, how there was that, that trio of SCTV um, kind of connected animation at the time. Yeah. What was Camp Candy? Yep. Monster. Oh, Gravedale, Gravedale High. High. Gravedale High and then Ed Grimley, but I only ever remember the Ed Grimley one being really good. The Ed Grimley one was amazing. It was essentially like a lost final season of SCTV. He brought all of the SCTV writers to that show, and most of the voice actors uh, were SCTV people. Joe Flaherty was in it in those live-action segments doing Count Floyd. Which took uh, forever it was to understand, because for years I was like, why yeah. did they throw that in there? And then I actually saw SCTV for the first time, I'm like, oh, okay, I got it. Right. It, it was such a funny show, and it holds up really well. I love that show. I feel terrible that I don't find SCTV that funny. I, I, I get it. I get the concept, and it's actually pretty brilliant. But at the same time, I don't find myself laughing a lot, and I'm always like, am I stupid? Is there something wrong with my I don't brain? think you're stupid. There, 
SCTV is such a weird, it's like a long con where they build worlds so much that there's like a cumulative effect and it doesn't work as well like Saturday Night Live where you cut up individual sketches. But some of the most I've ever laughed is at SCTV sketches that just have some of the absolute funniest things uh, I've ever seen and just hilarious stuff. Um, but but it gets, the more you watch it, the more you enjoy it, essentially. Yeah, the funny thing is they, they worked every little nook and cranny of what was on TV at that time. The strength strangeness of like new cable and uh public access and stuff like that and then the capper basically is this cartoon which is their 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 say on the cliches of animation and you know reworking it in their own vision absolutely and would reference you know the previous 50 years of popular culture in a way that only people who really uh you know understood it could could kind of get <laughs> The funny thing is, if you can find a picture of me in sixth grade, I kid you not, I had the Ed Grimley hairdo. Not to be nice. funny, I just went to school with it like that, and people are like, um, what's up with the hairdo? And I'm like, I do whatever <laughs> I want. <laughs> yeah, this is a choice. Uh, I look back on the sixth grade version of me, I'm like, he was a lot cooler than I am now, and uh, I kind of wish I could regain that. Like, I don't give a care what you think, I'm going to do what I want to do. How is he so much more confident than I am? <laughs> I, I moved to the country, and uh, I was the new kid, and I lost all of that. Right. Oh, yeah. I mean, one thing that was good was I never moved. We were always kind of in the same place, so I never really had to... I mean, kids didn't like me, and I was picked on unmercifully uh, for liking comic books and weird things, but uh, you know, I at least never had to be the new kid. That's funny is uh, I learned to read from comic books, and you tell people that back in the day, and they're like, uh, you special? What's wrong with you? But now it's like everybody's right. okay with being kind of nerdy, and they're like, that's cool. Uh, I, I have to say oh, yeah, this. Same. When I was in fourth grade, um, I could read a lot farther than a lot of the kids my age, and I think it's basically because my parents got me subscriptions to Incredible Hawk and Amazing Spider-Man. Yeah, and you're getting, um, you know, uh, ideas about sort of abstract concepts and, um, you know, right and wrong and sort of complicated moral questions. And it's it's I totally had the same exact experience. I remember getting an issue. Do you remember the bags of comics you could get at the pharmacy or like Target? You just go in the oh, yeah. They would have like 10, 10 all bundled together for 10 bucks or something. The Marvel ones were pretty safe, but I picked a pack of uh, DC comics once and they were all like crazy dark, like tons of murder. And it had Ragman right. and stuff like that. And I had my grandmother read them to me. And I can remember her being halfway through going, uh, we're going to stop here. <laughs> I loved Ragman. Ragman was such a cool comic. It's, it's kind of obscure, but not. I think he's part of like, um, what's that dark rain where it's like Blue Devil and. Uh, oh, yes. Yeah. Okay. The um, It's like the Justice League Dark, but they called yeah. it um, Shadow Pact. Yes, Shadow Pact. Excellent series. Yeah. It only lasted like two years, but every single thing about it was like, wow, I can't believe DC has the guts to finally do something like this. Yeah, Ragman was uh, also like a was really tied into like Jewish mythology and was basically a golem that was like an avenger of the Jewish people and was made from the rags of like um, like murdered Jews. That's crazy dark. And that's when DC, I think in the late 70s, early 80s, just started taking risks. Uh, which I, I wish they would do now. I feel like now they're just like, well, we're owned by Warner Brothers. We got to meet a certain criteria on sales. Let's not try anything too risky. Let's do lots of spinoffs. Yeah, well, I mean, what DC 
did was they had a, a what they called the Great Implosion, where they canceled a ton of titles in 1978, and then Warner Brothers purchased them, and then they were really the first of the big two to embrace the direct market. So this like growing comic book store and so um, market, and they would make these mature readers titles. The first one was that Camelot 3000. Um, that Brian Boland wrote, and that was just sold at comic book stores. It was not a newsstand comic, and it did really well. So that's when they got into like Watchmen and V for Vendetta, and and started, um, you know, making making Swamp Thing more of a uh, a weird dark comic. And it was it was an interesting move, and they need to kind of find an outlet like that again. I think. I remember seeing uh, printed in prestige format, and you knew you were getting something special. Better colors, better oh, paper. Absolutely. Baxter paper, I think is what they called it. Baxter paper, yeah. And, yeah, perfect bounce. Yeah, and, and the stories were always a little more mature. And I remember, like, at the time, I didn't understand anything by Alan Moore. I still have complicated, like, when I read it now, I'm like, oh, I need to really get my brain going. I can't just, like, phone it in when I'm reading it. Just kind of, oh, there's some good action. That's, that's a funny one-liner. You really have to sit there and... and be with the comic you can't be distracted yeah and that was uh that was pretty new at the time for sure all right so after ed grimley what do we have so we're at 6 30 i'm gonna go back in time a little bit and go with frankenstein jr wow that's a that's one i have not seen Frankenstein Jr. is fantastic. It was a Hanna-Barbera uh, 1960s cartoon. It was paired with a, a cartoon called The Incredibles, which was about a Beatles-like rock band who are also superheroes. And Frankenstein Jr. was about a kid named Buzz Corey who had a giant, basically robot, Voltron-type robot of Frankenstein that he controlled and flew around in, and they kind of like fought crime together. And it's funny that most people still think, no matter how many times you correct them, that it was not actually Frankenstein. It was Frankenstein's monster. Right, right. And they're like, no, 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 this yeah. creature, its name's Frankenstein. God, no, I, you know what? Forget it. We're good. Yeah. They they make that mistake with this cartoon as well because they call the, the robot Frankenstein Jr. But uh, And he talked like this. Hey, Buzz. It was like a very weird uh, – I actually am staring right in my office right now at a uh, – Maybe a two foot tall Frankenstein Jr. Uh, plastic, uh, like I guess it's an action figure that I have. The uh, I last year we did an episode based around monster cartoons, and we talked about Frankenstein Jr. But then I watched Groovy Ghoulies, and I was like, Nah, this is terrible. I don't think I want to visit another yeah. seventies. So maybe this this Halloween I'll revisit it. And we'll discuss it this year. Groovy Ghoulies is terrible. Uh, better version of Groovy Ghoulies was the Drac Pack. Yeah. Speaking but not still books. not that great. Uh, speaking of uh, comic books, the very first time I ever heard of Drac Pack, they used to have those advertisements, those two-page advertisements telling you everything that was coming out that fall on right. CBS or ABC or whatever. And I remember seeing a that little bit of Drac Pack thinking, that looks like the most amazing thing ever. Not realizing yeah. that the comic book I was reading was two years later and the cartoon had been canceled and I'm never going to see <laughs> yeah. it. I, that I was did not go, uh, It did all come out on DVD in Canada. Yeah, and I, I think most of the stuff's easy to import uh, yeah. through Amazon. Yeah, it's an okay cartoon. It's it's what I wanted Groovy Ghoulies to be. Yeah, well, I wanted something more action-oriented. I thought it was going to be more like in the line of like, you know, the boy cartoons of the 80s, like Transformers, G.I. Joe, where it's more, let's get the bad guys, right. let's fight them, no comedy, you know, no one-liners, that kind of thing. And I saw it, and I was like, oh, no, all right. Yeah, you wanted more like Monster in My Pocket. Yeah, you know, something like that, something – uh like I said, more action-oriented than comedy-oriented. And, of course, when you have stuff you're looking for forever, it kind of builds up in your brain. 
there's so many movies or albums that I was looking for forever and that I finally got. I was like, no, that's yeah it's very disappointing absolutely so i I think i'm up to seven now and i may be cheating a little bit with this one but i'm going to go with gumby oh no that's that's animation that any kind of animation okay uh and of course uh there's a couple loopholes i'm going to have in my episode where it's kind of animation kind of not right do do puppets count as animation i don't think so they're not drawn certain types of puppets like muppets are being animated by people they're not real I mean, they're True. real. They're not real. It's it's one thing that I can't figure out if that counts Muppets because Pryor's Place would fit in there. Pryor's Place would fit in there, um, as would Zoobly Zoo and uh, the new Zoo Review. What was that creepy one? The lady, a madam, something madam. Oh, Madam's Place. Yeah, that one always disturbed yeah, me Waylon, for some reason. Waylon Flowers and Madam. He, that was a spinoff. She was on a lot of – she was on Solid Gold and a lot of things like that, and he was just this super bitchy, horrible old lady. <laughs> Yeah, she was like, um, who was it? Um, who's the old lady on Mister Rogers that wasn't Lady Elaine? I don't know. Um, I know what you're talking about. Though. That disturbed me too. There's something about the puppets yeah. on that show that were so low rent and almost. If oh yeah. A, if there was a grindhouse version of puppets, that would fit in there. Like, there's something slightly disturbing about it all. Yeah, they look like Applehead dolls. Mm. Yeah. Um, so I think 7.30 after Gumby, which was a show that I absolutely loved, was so bizarre, such a weird show. Uh, I'm going with my favorite of the Scooby-Doo series, The 13 Ghosts of Scooby-Doo. <laughs> yeah, the one that's kind of like insulted constantly. It's like, oh, yeah, that's in the end of Scooby-Doo where no one cared anymore. And they're like, uh, what do we got? You know, just whatever last yeah. writers they had for some yeah. sort of concept. But it's actually pretty cool. It's really cool. It's because they had Scrappy-Doo, which people didn't like, but it was the, I think this has changed recently, but it was the only Scooby-Doo series that actually had real monsters in it. Yeah. It was real ghosts and monsters, and, and the actual Vincent Price was in it. Which um, awesome. Vincent Price yeah. is highly entertaining. Yeah, he's playing a character called Vincent Van Gogh. I mean, it was <laughs> such a great show. It was everything I wanted in 1985 when it aired. I uh, loved, loved, loved that show. Uh, I apologize. I didn't say anything about Gumby whatsoever. I really don't have anything to say about Gumby. I've seen That's it. That's all right. Like, uh, all right. It's really weird. And I used to watch, there used to be a show on USA Network called Night Flight that aired all night. And they showed weird shorts. And it was it was kind of like an insomniac's best friend. And they'd show like old um, you know, educational films and from the 50s. And they always showed Gumby. And it always worked in the context of whatever the hell they were watching. Gumby always was just weird enough to work. I think the only Gumby that I recall is the one that played on Mystery Science Theater, the robot rumpus or something like that. Other than yes. That, I have, yep. I, I've seen the movie. I remember they tried to revive it in the mid-90s with a full-length movie, and uh-huh. uh, it didn't take. I think it was barely released by Evergreen or some small company. And uh, he's one of those things I think is just kind of of that era, and I don't think he's ever really going to be revived. No, and the 50s stuff was fantastic. It's 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 just so weird. Um, yeah, so Gumby into 13 Ghosts of Scooby-Doo, and then I'm going to bump it up to the 90s for, for a few minutes, and I'm going to go with The Tick. Oh, definitely. I don't know how many weeks go by without us going, Spoon! Yeah, absolutely. I, um, oh, I'm going to sneeze. Hold on. <laughs> Ugh. Um, I don't want to uh, give this away too much, but um, in a couple weeks, in episode 151 of my show, I have Ben Edlund Woo! on the show, who created The Tick, and I was at his house recording the episode, and um, he you know, gave me a coffee, and I was stirring it, and then I picked up the spoon and was going to ask, uh, you know, where, where do you want me to put this? And I was like, where should I put this spoon? And I was like, oh, no. <laughs> and he was like, no, you had to do it. <laughs> it's a given. <laughs> yeah. 
uh, this is one of those, the 90s was kind of a strange era where the creator of the show was allowed to take it wherever they wanted to. They didn't have to fit in some sort of cookie cutter factory uh, idea that was already proven. It's like, oh, this is similar to this. The creator owned cartoons were wild and inventive and very funny. Absolutely. And again, you had these people who grew up on cartoons that were able to create cartoons and you had the advantage of, uh, you know, Fox was trying to desperately get into the Saturday morning games. So they were kind of greenlighting anything. And you got in a lot of weird shows like Eek the Cat and Bobby's World, which is the only good thing Howie Mandel's ever done. <laughs> uh, and The Tick. Yeah, Killer Tomatoes, which their gimmick was that part of it was computer animated, which also was the gimmick in the in Beetlejuice cartoon first season. Um, you know, it was really, really weird. Yeah, so I'm definitely going with the tick. That's, that's uh, one seven, that has not aged at all. You could still watch it now and be like, this this still works 100%. And it oh, absolutely. It doesn't really interrupt the fact that there's a live action version either, which are both excellent. Uh, you, can, yeah. you can put those in a package, watch one and watch the other and you'll be fine. The tone is the same. And and Ben kind of lucked out because that that show, the cartoon, did not need to have him involved in any way. And he was going to NYU and was living near where they were producing it. And they let him basically hang around and work on the show. So it has his voice. And he created the comic. He created the cartoon, worked on it, and the live action show and worked on it. So it has this sort of unusually consistent comedic voice to it that is highly unusual but really good. And I'm very excited for the Amazon series. Yeah, the comic book was during an era when, the, like you are saying, the direct market started growing and all these little tiny independent companies started showing up. And most of it, looking back on it, was kind of, oh, yet another sword and sorcery. They're all kind of in the same line. Then all of a sudden it kind of switched around 86, 87, where they started to take like kind of a crazy turn and more uh, uh, parody and humorous, you know, because we had Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles, The Tick. Right. Um, there's another one that's really adolescent radioactive black belt hamsters, like really hamsters yep. stuff. And uh, a lot of the cartoons of the 90s came from the fact that those independent 80s comic books started to break through. Oh, yeah. Like Evan Dorkin, who did Milk and Cheese, uh, you know, he worked on the Space Ghost Coast to Coast show and a lot of the um, the pre adult swim adult swim shows. And so a lot of those sort of underground comics guys definitely were able to parlay that into uh, cartoons. And I think another big uh, influence on that was Cracked Magazine, which um, in an effort to to somehow not be the Pepsi to Mad Magazine's Coke, started hiring all these underground comics artists like, um, uh, why am I forgetting his name? Yeah, Severin ran it, and he also did uh, Monsters Attack, which was one of my favorite magazines. Um, But uh, why am I, uh, Ghost World, Um, Daniel Close, and um, yeah, a a lot of those guys were, were writing and drawing stuff for Cracked, and, you know, ended up working on some cartoons and stuff. It was very, very weird. Yeah, I go back and I read some of the Cracked magazines, and um, there's – it's kind of like an independent movie idea. It's like, well, we, we can't afford, like, the big names, um, so we're going to go strange. You can see as yeah. the 80s was progressing, it was getting weirder and weirder and weirder, and they weren't so focused on the movie or TV parodies. It's like, what do we have of our own concept that we can kind of grow and get people right. into? But not a lot of people remember Cracked Magazine the way it was. They know it as it is now, the online humor, right. like straightforward. There's no Sylvester P. Smith. and Or uh, the Ugly Family or Nanny Dickering or any of those like weird monster party characters. The to- the, are they the ones that had the blob, the talking blob? Yeah, and that one guy who was so ugly, he always just had a rag over his head and you didn't know how ugly he was. 
Yeah, there's this kind of a archaic punk vibe to that magazine, which few people remember and they should discover because I think a lot of the Mad Magazines you look back and they're like, wow, that was sexist. You know, that's very safe, oh, yeah. straightforward. And it's also very 70s. I think that Mad um, by the 80s felt very 70s still. And Cracked felt very 80s in the best way. Like there was just so much. And it really, you know, I really uh, responded to that sort of aesthetic as well because it had sort of that Pee Wee's Playhouse, Gary Panther yeah. kind of vibe to a lot of the design and layout. And I, I loved that. Where and so at? I think that was a huge influence. I can't remember where we're at in this. <laughs> we're at, we're at 8 o'clock, I think. Okay. So, yeah. Uh, so 8 o'clock, I'm going with, speaking of 80s underground comics, I'm going with Cadillacs and Dinosaurs. I have no memory of I remember the comic book. I have no memory of the cartoon. Yeah, it was on CBS 1989, I think. Only lasted about seven episodes. was really, really great. And uh, I absolutely loved it. It was, it was very, very true to the, co to the comic and was fantastic. Was it a mid-season replacement? Because that seems like a real low order for a cartoon. It's usually minimum 13. No. Yeah, it was, a, it was a September start, and it just didn't – I think it was expensive. It looked really great, um, and it just – kids didn't like it. So they replaced it, I think, with another half hour of, um, I want to say, Muppet Babies. I wonder if there's episodes that were unfinished, or they were finished, but at some – they've never been released. Is Cadillac it's very on possible. DVD? No, I have a bootleg of it, but it's never been officially released. So I'm wondering if there's still episodes sitting in someone's vault, because it seems strange to only order that many episodes. It's possible. It's it possible. Great. And it was a great show. It managed to combine like the best weird high concept sci-fi that like Land of the Lost would have, but um, had this cool retro vibe. It was, it was great. All right. What do we have after that? I'm pairing that with Dinosaurcers. Oh, okay. I remember this one. This was awesome. Was this one yeah, Marvel? This was, did Marvel produce this? Um, yes, Marvel did produce this. It was uh, essentially a ripoff of Transformers, um, except the Decepticons and the Autobots were dinosaurs from another planet, and instead of transforming into a car or a boat or something, they could devolve into giant dinosaurs. That's awesome. Did you ever watch it Dino was, Riders? I did, but I found that boring in really? light of Dinosaurcers. I love Dino Riders. Um, I think both of them are from the same company. Marvel... Had bought the was it the Patty Freeling studio and started doing their own animation, and yep. if you look at a lot of those cartoons that were syndicated, uh, they're from Jam. that company. Yep, Gem, GI Joe, Marvel had started, um, and a lot of the weird ones like uh, Beverly Hills Teens, and then stuff they sold to Deke later when they started having some financial trouble. <laughs> But Dinosaurs also had such a great 80s theme song that was just that, like, Richard Marx-esque husky 80s voice guy going, Dinosaurs! You know, like a big, like, dun, 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 dun. It was, it was fantastic. The theme songs in the 80s were just the pinnacle. I cannot tell you anything in the last 10 years where I'm like, oh, yeah, I know that theme. I, I couldn't possibly tell you. Yeah. But it, you give me an 80s show, even kind of an obscure one, and I'll be like, oh, yeah, I know that one. Yeah. So, oh yeah, I don't that, know why it is that, was that the they best. stopped focusing on uh, vocal-oriented theme songs, whereas now it's just kind of like a, a slow instrumental, and then they just jump right into the show. They probably have to pay less people, and they can probably sell more ads. That, <laughs> They'll save time. That's right. They do have to pay the person who created the song. Didn't Alan Thicke make a fortune off of theme songs? Absolutely. He wrote Facts of Life, Different Strokes. Uh, he wrote the theme song and sang the theme song to his Saturday morning show, uh, the live action game show Animal Crackups that he hosted. Oh my God, I remember that. Was that a cable show? No, it was on NBC. I mean, ABC. Right. I thought that was and a cable show. Uh, I saw it in reruns or something. 
Oh, it was fantastic and whatnot. Animals are just like people too. They love their families. They're just like me and you. And it was Alan Thick singing it. And it aired in an hour-long block with the other really weird live-action Saturday morning game show. I'm telling. Is that the one where the brother and sister are arguing? Yes. Oh, it was, I was a trying re- to remember yes. what that was. It was basically the dating game or the newlywed game, except for siblings. It was the same game. But they never used the word whoopee. Okay. Oh, thank goodness, because that'd be creepy. I'm like, I gotta shut yeah. this off immediately and report this. <laughs> yeah, but the concept of the same would be like, what would your brother say is your most annoying habit? And then if they got a match, they got a point, and then at the end they ran through this like uh, mall and could pick toys. It was kind of a super toy run kind yeah. of thing. I love those kids' game shows like Fun House and Double Dare. Oh yeah. Finders Keepers, I think was one. There's one where they played video yep. games. It was on Nickelodeon. I can't remember what that one was called. Yep. Nick Arcade. That's, oh, that was really simple. I should be able to remember something yep. like that. But there was an even better one. There was a syndicated uh, after-school strip show um, with a guy named Johnny Arcade called Video Power. Oh, I have no idea what that is. I gotta find that. Yeah, it, this this kid is his real name was Stiffy Paninsky. <laughs> And he went by the name Johnny Arcade. And the first season, it was just him in his room giving you tips on games. And it had a cartoon in the show that was uh, all these really lame, acclaimed video game characters. Like it was a ripoff of Captain N, the Game Master. And then that failed. So the second season, they reinvented it as basically Funhouse, but for video games. Huh. I got to find this. All right. What do we have after Dino Saucers? Dinosaurs, so I think we're at 9 a.m., uh, and I'm going to start getting into the action shows now, and I am going with the Bionic 6. Oh, my God. I have a friend who has been wanting us to do this for three years, and for some reason I keep putting it off, but I remember this so well. The, uh, the yeah. shoes had those weird little ports on them, right? Am I... Yeah, yeah, like Centurions did as well. Um, but it went Bionic, Bionic 6, and it was actually a really well-animated show. Um, and, and was just a good show. It was basically like Brady Bunch meets the, the $6 million man. I have to correct myself. I forgot. We did cover Bionic 6 when we did the Fantastic Four episode. I'm thinking of Centurions. Uh, Centurions. Had Centurions. Port, uh, yep. Uh, costumes. No, Bionic 6, yeah, that was really actually pretty good. I enjoyed it more than yeah, Fantastic the t- Four. Oh, yeah. And the toys were die-cast metal, which was really weird and really good for hitting siblings with. <laughs> it must have been expensive to make them, too. Yeah, oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. So then at 830, I'm going with Spider-Man and his amazing friends. Oh, yes. Uh, are you, were you torn between the 90s series or the 80s series? Oh, the 80s series, hands down. Had the great 80s music, sound effects, uh, the Stan Lee narration. It was just, uh, it has a very special nostalgic place in my heart. Although I recognize the 90s series was a better story series, but I appreciated the animation and just the vibe of the 80s one a lot more. I can't for life me remember the voice of Iceman, but he was a guy that every single cartoon had his voice. And you're just like, he must work nonstop. He's actually the highest paid uh, voiceover animated uh, actor. It's Frank Welker. Frank Welker. Okay. I was thinking Don Mesnick. Uh, yeah. Frank Welker was also uh, Freddy on Scooby-Doo. Yeah. And in um, the Dungeons and Dragons cartoon, he's the goat. He will pretty much do any voice. Anything you ask him to do, he'll do. We actually were going to think of uh, creating a drinking game because every time we discuss one of the cartoons, there is a 90% chance Frank Welker will pop up. And, Absolutely, uh, it's amazing because nobody else really. I mean, Billy West does a ton of cartoons, but there's nobody. Uh, Rob Paulson does a ton of them too. But Frank Welker is like the king of voiceovers. Oh, absolutely. And any character that sounds like is Frank Welker. Like he, he's Slimer. He's Slimer on the real Ghostbusters. 
That's a real specific yell you had there. <laughs> it yeah, actually sounded like exactly... the goat from D&D. Yeah, he's pretty much, that's Frank Welker's specialty. <laughs> the weird thing is, uh, uh, I think Amazing Spider-Man and his friends, it was actually him first for the first season, and then like the second one is when they added Firestar and Iceman. Am I wrong? No, there's so what happened was there was two Spider-Man shows at once. There was an ABC, I mean an NBC Saturday morning show, and then there was a syndicated daily Spider-Man show that they're producing at the same time. And the the Spider-Man on his own show was the syndicated one. It didn't do very well. So what they ended up doing was folding those episodes into the Amazing Friends package for the second season. I always loved their apartment complex that would flip around and switch whenever they had to go into their superhero mode. Oh, yeah. Oh, that's awesome. Yeah. I hated it that was dog. fantastic. Hated that dog. Oh, everyone hated the dog. <laughs> Mrs. Something. It was like some full woman's name, a very formal name. It's strange that they created Firestar just for the cartoon and then later added her to the comics uh, when they had a catalog of people they could have grabbed from. And I don't know why they didn't. Well, they first wanted it to be the Human Torch. And they had developed the show around the Human Torch, which is kind of why you get like a fire and ice thing. Um, but then they realized that the rights were still tied up in that deal that caused them to not be able to use them on the 78 Fantastic Four cartoon. So they also thought it would be good to have a girl, so they created Firestar. There's a weird history and lineage of comic book character, female comic book characters being created for an animated show and then folding into the comic. Spider-Woman was the same thing, actually. I didn't know that. I know Harley Quinn was, but I didn't know that about And Harley Quinn. That's yeah, there was a ripoff show that Filmation did, a superhero ripoff show, and they had a character named Web Woman. And so Marvel Comics created Spider Woman to sort of counteract it so they could claim the copyright before them. Was that the Ralph Bakshi superhero show? Yes, yep. Super Seven, maybe, or um, something like that. I'd look that up. All right, yeah. what do we have next? So at 9 a.m. now, I'm, I'm getting a little more mature in, uh, in these hours, and I'm going with, uh, I want to listen to a little music, going with Kid Video. Oh my god, that's so good! I didn't, I didn't remember it really that well, and someone suggested it, and I watched it again. I was like, "Holy crap! How did I not watch this on a regular basis?" It, it's really the oh, songs are excellent. Oh yeah, and that's one of the reasons you'll never see the show released officially because the, they're they're doing contemporary songs. Uh, and they did they did put out an album that was released only in Israel. Oh, that's the choice place to put it out. <laughs> yep, yep. I do have it. No kidding. It's wow. A, it's a pretty great album. Yeah, it's got uh got some classic songs on there. Loved that show. Absolutely loved that show. This is this uh, seems like kind of a story trend is where you have an earthling uh going to these other dimensions or other worlds or whatever and you know like Captain N and stuff like that. It was a really popular yep. idea at the time and it, it almost always works. Oh yeah, well I think it fulfills every childhood fantasy and it's 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 very much just the Wizard of Oz, you know. It's rewriting those kind of childhood books, but there's I think all kids want to feel special and feel like they're don't fit in in their current world. Like, man, if there was a world I could go to and I would be like their superhero and it would be, I'd just be cool there. <laughs> yeah, and that is one of them. And the show I'm pairing it with is the other show that I reference a lot. That's very much like that. and was a girl's show, but I did enjoy it. And it was called wildfire. Is that the one with the horse? Yes. 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 I've never seen this cartoon and I have to apologize for anybody who's listened to the show. I think only once we discussed a female-oriented cartoon, and I think I'm being a little sexist. It's just because I didn't really watch them. I only ever watched She-Ra and a little bit of uh, Gem, and that was about it. So I don't really have fond memories of it, but at some point I have to tackle these cartoons. But um, yeah. tell me about Wildfire because I barely know anything about that. 
So Wildfire was a show about a girl who was an orphan. She worked on like a ranch and had a horse and her horse was actually a protector from another dimension. Her horse Wildfire, who was voiced by John Vernon, who was an actor. It was the uh, the villain in um, Animal House uh, and in, in Killer Clowns from Outer Space. Um, and for so him to do a cartoon when he's almost always the villain. Yeah, yeah. And he's like her protector. And she is, again, the heir to this throne in this other mystical dimension. Her mother is the queen there and has either been killed or uh, deposed by some evil witch. And so she threw basically her daughter to this other dimension to, to keep her safe. And so she goes back and forth between the dimensions, to between our world and this other world to like save uh, the, the inhabitants of this other weird like elfin dimension. It was very much like Dungeons and Dragons and Wizard of Oz and uh, it was a really interesting weird show but again I don't even think made it to a full 13 episodes yeah it's funny if you put that in a live action setting you have like Roswell or Powers of Matthew Star like that kind of concept. totally so that would work yeah. in animation totally I mean that's actually budgetary reasons I would just do that as animation yeah yeah, and, and that would do very well now, I think. It reminded me a lot of the 80s uh, DC comic Amethyst, Princess of Gem World. That is deep cut, dude. That is yeah, really yeah. obscure. <laughs> yep. <laughs> I was, that, that, that is the pinnacle of like weirdo references like no one else would get. But uh, if you had said Warlord, <laughs> that might have been a little more popular. But yeah, Amethyst. You know, I've been uh, yeah. eyeballing a couple episodes uh, of those issues at my comic book shop. And I'm like, hmm, Amethyst. That looks kind of interesting. They're probably in the quarter bin, right? Uh, well, no. I have one comic book shop in town. That's, this dude knows that it's hard to get comic books yeah. around here. So he charges a little bit uh. more. Because that's quarter bin, that's classic quarter bin stuff. And it's if you find it in a quarter bin, I highly recommend you can usually pick up that whole series. Uh, Dazzler, you can pick up pretty cheap. They're all actually pretty good reads. Uh, what do we have next? So next, I think we're at 10 a.m. Uh, and I think, again, this stretches your your question to what is animation. I'm going with Pee-wee's Playhouse. Oh, that, that counts. That had uh, Penny. Yeah. And uh, yep. had, didn't it have some public domain stuff mixed in with it? Yeah, they showed some old film, um, not filmation, um, Fleischer Studios cartoons and the King of Cartoons would come in. Um, they also had the claymation with the dinosaur people. It was just such that show was life changing. Yeah, that totally counts. I'm except even if it okay. didn't have an inch of animation, I would just be like, yeah, that's cool. I'm, I'm good with that because that was great the show. Problem, the problem with this concept is uh, Saturday morning had a lot of live action stuff in it. We had uh, the Ernest show. Um, I mean, you even had what that the basketball show that was on during Saturdays. Hang time. Hang time, and then you had Saved by the Bell. So there's a lot of fluctuations in there that I haven't oh, yeah. really worked out yet. City Guys, The Guys Next Door, and then you had um, you had Saturday morning videos for a while on NBC. Well, mine is uh, the ABC Story Break with uh, OG. Oh yeah. Moore. That one that I'm going to be using that on my list, and I know it wasn't always animated, but it's gonna I'm gonna right. let it slip through because it's my my game, and I'm gonna cheat. <laughs> I loved the How to Eat Fried Worms episode of that show. Oh, yeah. Uh, mine was Bungie. Bungie. Oh, nice. And there was Dragonflight as well, which was actually really good. Uh, so now I'm up to 1030, and I'm going with – this is usually the last sort of animated hour because at 11, we would get uh, – in most places, you would get either American Bandstand or Soul Train. In New England, we got Candlepin Bowling. That's how you knew that Saturday morning was over. Wow. Uh, really? Yeah. Oh, yeah. Uh, Candlepin Bowling was very, very popular. Um, so at 1030, I'm going with Justice League Unlimited. Oh, man. That is my favorite of the bunch. I know everybody holds the previous series up high, 
But I like the obscure mix with a popular mm-hmm. character. So if you want to see someone with Red Tornado or Green Arrow, you know, or Booster Gold, you go there. That's where you get yeah. the obscure characters working together. And it changed all the time. Absolutely. It was a great show. And I love that whole uh, Bruce, Bruce Tim Paul Dini universe. Uh, I love Superman, the animated series. I think it's the best comic adaptation that's ever been done. Um, and I love Superman, but I actually think it fixes a lot of problems with Superman on that show. Uh, and I obviously love Batman, the animated series, but Justice League Unlimited might be my all fit, my favorite of all those series. And you can jump in and out at any time. You just get like your little chunk uh, of that arc and then move on. You yeah. Can come back later. Yep. Uh, Absolutely. The one thing I want to say about Pee-wee's Playhouse was it was incredibly smart decision on his, uh, Paul Rubin uh, to do the chunks of them all at once. Like, shoot yep. four seasons worth, but do it in like a one-year period of time. That way he could do other things. Though, oddly enough, I didn't really see him creating anything else. Yeah, I mean, well, there was that big controversy well, yeah. with the... Yeah, so I think he couldn't he couldn't get a job after that, and he had pitched things for years. He actually had auditioned for SNL like something like twenty two times, and they never would have him on. And one of the reasons he started doing the original Pee Wee Herman show at the Roxy in LA was kind of as an FU to SNL, being like, I can do my own thing, and got that HBO special, which just filmed the Roxy show, and then did Big Adventure, and then was able to to do the Saturday morning show. Um, yeah, he. Uh, I don't know if he wanted to do anything else after that. Or, or you know he probably couldn't did were you disappointed by big top peewee i was incredibly disappointed by big top peewee it had none of the you know it had none of the magic of the original it was it if if peewee's big adventure didn't exist big top peewee would have been great yeah I feel like big but top uh peewee is the disney version of what they thought peewee was all about whereas the first version is like kind of like out of nowhere there's a lot of weird stuff going on it's like they were left alone to do whatever they wanted but once the first one was a hit, then all of a sudden the studio heads started getting involved, and, and that's when you ruin something special like that. Absolutely. And I actually really like Pee-wee's Big Vacation. The new Netflix one was actually very good. I haven't got around to watching that yet, but I've heard good things. It's good. It's good. I was very skeptical, but it is it is good. All right. Uh, are we at the end of our schedule, or do we have anything else? We're at the end. I'm at 11 a.m. now. Usually we are done with cartoons at this point uh, here, um, and I would I would be forced to flip over to USA Network and watch Commander USA's groovy movies or something like that. I would be booted out of the house. Go play baseball or something. Yeah. And uh, I, I was. it's weird that um, I watched so much television. I felt like I was a walking TV guide, and which is what my grandfather referenced me to. But then I looked back at my childhood, <laughs> right. and I'm like, no, I was outside a lot. I just mixed it up, you know. Oh, I'll watch a couple hours of TV, do a couple hours of homework, and then go outside for a couple hours. And somehow it just still resonates. Most of that stuff still sits in my brain. But if you ask me any math questions, I'd be like, I don't remember anything. Do you guys want to talk about Riptide? nothing yeah no? <laughs> oh same thing here like i like i look at all these when i still kind of watch saturday morning cartoons and there's always ads on them about kids being obese and so they're always like hey why don't you go walk and all this kind of thing and i'm like i played video games i ate junk food i watched so much tv but i was in good shape and i was outside playing all the time how did that work when i had like very few friends yeah, it's, and it's... watched all this stuff like how was i out exercising what are these kids doing i have to tell you i didn't have that many friends because I was too strange. I look back on my childhood remembering many, many hours of me listening to baseball games with my glove and ball thrown it on the roof and watching it roll right. around and catching it again. And I'm sure it drove my parents crazy. Yeah. Oh, I'm sure. Just the constant hammering of the ball on the roof. Yeah. I mean, I would like go out and ride my bike. I'd ride to the comic store. I, you know, I, I guess I was like a 
a normal sort of physical kid, but I, I certainly didn't feel like it at the time. It just it's kind of damning uh, evidence of how out of shape the current generation of children is. Yeah, the weird thing is they don't have Saturday morning anymore. I mean, yes, you could watch Cartoon Network or Nickelodeon, but we're talking very specific schedules set by the networks because this was a big focus of theirs. And then you watched it slowly disappear throughout the 90s, and then now there's nothing. Nobody has any programming left on Saturdays. Yeah, but that's why it sticks with you, because for us, it was appointment television, and you looked forward to it all week. You got up early to watch it. You tried to absorb every single minute of it while it was happening, because you knew you couldn't watch those things again for another seven days. And I think now, when you have access to whatever you want, whenever you want, it makes you sort of pay attention in a less intense way, so you don't the shows don't tend to stick with you like they do for us where, you know, like you were just saying, I, how do I still remember these things that were just sort of uh, a time waster? And it's because it was, it was a, a really notable time. Yeah. You had your Saturday block every once in a while. One of those like UHF stations, they would have like a little tiny block on Sundays, but it was mostly like movies yep. and sports. And then you had the after school strip, which like you said, you had happy or you had a uh, Bozo the clown. I had happy the hobo. And that's where you saw mm -hmm. all, like, the Transformers, G.I. Joe, stuff like that. It was very specific chunks. If I knew at eight years old that there'd be a whole station available to me with animation all day long, I would still be in third grade. I never would have finished my homework. I never Oh, yeah. Yeah, why would you? And there's one one honorable mention, if I could cheat a little and put yeah, it in there, ahead. that I couldn't find a slot for. But I really wanted to watch, and this aired on Sunday mornings here, was uh, Fantastic Max. Oh, yeah, that was actually a pretty highly entertaining show. And this is just as I was getting out of watching that kind of animation. I wouldn't come yeah. back until it was like, you know, when The Simpsons and The Critic and stuff like that, like on primetime would kick in. Mm -hmm. Fantastic Max is one that I caught like a handful of episodes of before I started to lose interest. Great show. It was a, it was a U.S.-U.K. co-production. It was the people who had made a show called Super Ted in the U.K., and they had kind of reappropriated some of the characters from that, and it was very knowing and fun and weird. And a, Again, one of those shows about someone who's nothing here but has this um, you know, amazing, incredible, important other life where it's literally a baby who gets picked on by his brother is essentially Han Solo. <laughs> There's a handful of cartoons during the 80s from the U.K., that I remember constantly being on Nickelodeon, uh, Banana Man, uh, Banana Man, Man Ducula, uh, Danger Mouse, Danger Mouse, and they always had a different vibe to them, and you felt like you're watching something unique and special. Absolutely, absolutely. All right. Yeah, I, I love that stuff. This brings us to the end of the schedule, so that pretty much wraps up our episode. But uh, we want to announce something special: is your new album comes out this month. It does. It's out uh, digitally on the 20th. Uh, you can get it you know, on iTunes and Google Play and all those places. And uh, for people in the New England area on the 27th, I'm doing a big record release show and I'll have physical copies there. And uh, I, I ordered a bunch of weird merchandise that I'll have and it should be fun. I recorded it at the uh, Nerdist showroom at Meltdown Comics back in February. Uh, and it's uh, yeah, it's, I think it I think it came out good. You tend to do a lot of shows. Do you mostly just do your stand-up in the Boston area and L.A. or occasionally, and that's about it? Or do you? Ah, uh, pretty much. I mean, I, I go down. I don't do a lot of touring and road gigs. I, I do go down to New York um, frequently, and I go out to L.A. a few times a year. I'll usually do a few comedy festivals, so like the Bridgetown Festival or you know some of the odd festivals here and there. But I definitely don't um, do like the club circuit, which I probably should if I, I wanted know. to I actually make any money. 
you know, you and I were talking about it. When I was in college, I did stand up for a very short chunk of time. And I kept thinking mm -hmm. about, A, I, um, Indiana people don't have the same sense of humor that I do, so it's not going to work. And B, right. the touring thing. I don't like driving that much. I don't want to spend so much money. Like, I feel like a lot of the stories I hear is like, well, I spent all the money getting there, and I have five yeah. bucks to pay for a meal, and then I'm actually in the hole. Oh, yeah, it's miserable. I mean, and I was in a punk rock band in the 90s when I was a teenager, and we did a lot of touring, and I think I got that all out of my system then um, to the point where I was like, you know, I can do my podcast a few times a week and kind of scratch that itch, and I can do, you know, shows when I want, and, and I, I'm very lucky in that I kind of get to waltz on side of sort of the cool kids' shows, and and um and it's, you know, it's just much more enjoyable. Yeah, there's something about podcasting. It's like having – that that moment that intimate moment where you're just like sitting in a room with a friend and you're just discussing whatever pops in your head which goes against what normal broadcasting is i listened mm -hmm. to bob and tom when i was a kid i don't know if you've heard you've heard of them right they're national yeah oh they're the hugest yeah they're say, the I biggest so. radio show uh, yeah. but uh living in indiana you kind of think everything's just yours uh right you you listen to them now and you're like you're not even actually having the discussion you're just you know, oh, we have two minutes to, to get this out and then commercial. Two minutes commercial. And it's so oh, yeah. robotic. Yeah, even when like when I started my podcast, I can't. I used to work in radio, so I was like, you know, I'm gonna keep these at 30 minutes. And um, and weirdly, I realized that all the things I thought would apply don't, and that the longer the episode is, the more downloads it would get, or the more listens, and uh, like the more in depth you got, the more specific, the more people liked it, and it's because they're listening to it in a very, very different way, and that that was uh, a, a kind of pleasant wake up. I actually worked in radio for a while, too, and in the beginning, when you're in high school and college, you know, studying radio, they kind of let you do whatever you want. You just got to do at the top of the hour, and, you know, uh, the time and the temperature and, you know, the, the call signs, um, but they let us pick whatever we want. We play comedy bits and whatever genre, and then after that, it's like, oh, this is owned by a corporation who wants to look for profit, so they're going to stick to right. one thing, and you're like, my rebellious attitude did not fit in whatsoever. I'm like, I don't get why you guys have to just do all classic rock or all alternative. Right. Why don't you grab a little bit of everything and why don't you have a conversation for 20 minutes? Something like that. And the and same 10 songs. It just yeah. Turned me off so bad. And uh, I kid you not, uh, there was one radio station that I was at where we had about 30 carts. Uh, kids' carts were eight tracks with songs on them. Yeah. Uh, and I could only stick. I couldn't even bring in new music. I had to go with those 30 songs. And I was like, you realize oh, yeah. we're on all the time, right? This 30 songs is one hour. Yeah, and I think you're seeing a backlash. I think uh, people wanted less and less human touch in things. So so in the early days of FM, you had the DJ would kind of be the tastemaker and be like, here's cool stuff I know about, and here's my personality, and that's what people wanted. And then in the 90s, early 2000s, we started getting stuff like, like Jack FM, which was basically just an iPod with no human interaction. And now you're seeing it kind of come around again, which is why I think that podcasts are kind of hitting with people because they're sort of er the exact antithesis of that. Yeah. And it's interesting and, and is, is nice. I'm, you know, it's nice to see. Yeah, you get to cultivate what your show is about, whether it's radio or podcasting. If you want to put together, I think there's a there, little Stevie's Underground. He picks like 30 songs every show that are kind of unusual, that are really cool, that no one's ever heard of because the studio didn't think it was worth releasing as a single. And then podcasting, right. you can really pick a very specific topic. Uh, mind you, you're skewing to a very specific audience, so you're not going to get huge numbers. I, I do realize that when I do a, an episode about rock and wrestling, uh, that I'm going to get a very finite number of people. 
but they'll be really engaged though. It's not passive listening, which is the difference between the radio. Like they're not putting it on while they, you know, wash dishes. They're, they're seeking it out and really listening to it. So it's like a quality versus quantity too, for the listenership. And to wrap up this episode, basically that's the direction we're kind of going with the show. Me and Jacob, uh, the co-creator, we're still going to pick very specific cartoons to discuss. But to get guests on or whatever, this is kind of a concept. I don't want to call it a game, but it's just an idea about how to do a show that's kind of generalized. Like if you like animation, you kind of get something here in the show. Like, oh, I remember that. I don't know that. But I'm going to go discover that cartoon. That's kind of the direction that I'm going with the show right now. And I, I thank you very much for being basically the guinea pig on this episode. Oh, no. I, I had a lot of – I could talk about cartoons all day. I'm happy to do it. Yeah, I, that's a, it's a great thing where if someone goes, oh, I, you know, I've heard of that person. I like their taste. Maybe I'll listen to it, and there's some things that I've never heard of that I'll check out. Yeah, that's yeah. A, it's really fun. Yeah, and definitely check out uh, his show, TV Guidance Counselor. Uh, I apologize. I am way behind. You have a crazy amount of episodes. It's like what you're oh, like 150 now, 160. Yeah. Yeah, our, our big 150th episode is coming out in about two weeks, um, but I actually think I've done like 180 episodes. I just I didn't count like the live ones and stuff in the in the number count. Um, I have a very big guest to, to me for my 150th that I, I think will be big for other people as well. I'm very excited about that one. And uh, yeah, it's been it's been a lot of episodes somehow. Yeah, it's a, it's an excellent show. I, I here's the weird thing I'm doing with your show. I've listened to like the first 50 episodes, but then I started grabbing the new episodes. So I'm I'm going right. I'm going up and then I'm going backwards. So somewhere I'll meet <laughs> around episode 75. It's gonna be strange. Yeah, that's a little that's a little disjointed. But uh, <laughs> you're watching it like you're you're like it's memento. Yeah, at least it's not like <laughs> at least it's not like um, serialized where there's a storyline yeah. going through each episode. I'm like, wait, how did this happen? And it's not timely either. Like we bounce around so much about, and it's about the past. So, you know, you're not, you don't have to listen in order. Yeah. It's someday, somehow we're going to have to, if you ever come to Portland, we'll, I'll try to come and meet you or whatever. So we can do an episode. Cause I, I'm, uh, I'm not going to say I'm like a, yeah. a, a crazy fan of the show, but I love talking about TV so much that I find myself, cause we were discussing this, like what episode I want to do. And I'm mm-hmm. torn. I'm like 84. No, no. 86. No, 87. Oh, I can't. It's tough. 83. <laughs> yeah. Mid-season, no fall, no that, yeah, no, we'll totally will, and I, I, um, I, I need to get back out to Portland. I did the live one with Brendan Small last year out there, and I'd love to get back out there. I, I really like Portland, so yeah, I will get out there at some point. We certainly will do it. All right, everybody, check us out on Facebook under Retro Rock Entertainment or Back in Tunes. Uh, those are both the pages for all the podcasts that we do, and yours is just TV Guidance Counselor. Yep, just TV Guidance Counselor, and it's TVGuidanceCounselor.com, and my comedy page is iCanRead.com. All right, everybody. Be excellent to each other and have an excellent evening.